Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today on episode 199, we are finishing off our discussion of Tress of the Emerald Sea by Brandon Sanderson. I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and my guests are, once again, Evgeny from the 17th Shard. I am Evgeny from the 17th Shard. Also known as Argent. <laughs> or is also known as Argent. Of the... Which sea would I be from? Ooh, yeah, I like that. Mm. I don't know. From the mm. the Sun Sea. I I want to know what some other seas are. <laughs> yeah, we only know about half. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, our other guest, of course, is my wife, Lauren McCaffrey. Hey, guys. Who was waiting eagerly to crack that beer in front of the mic. <laughs> that, it's not uh, the first time that's happened. Yeah. Before we head into the episode itself, though, a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content, such as exclusive episodes, exclusive original fiction, and much more. But now for the summary. In the second half of Tress of the Emerald Sea, Crow's pirate crew sails into the Crimson Sea. Here, the weather is unpredictable, making the ethers far more dangerous. While they try to avoid inclement storms, Tress desperately tries to find a way to escape her fate as a slave to the dragon. She throws herself into studying the ethers. She quickly gains training with cannons and discovers more about how the several varieties of them at her disposal actually work. She uses her newfound knowledge of intent to save the crow's song with verdant spores when they get trapped by two storms. Soon after, Crow uses Midnight Essence to spy on Tress and discovers the mutiny she's planning with Anne, Sally, and the others. She calls a meeting of the whole crew and defeats them before revealing that they have arrived at the dragon's lair. They descend through a tunnel of spores beneath the Crimson Sea, and there Crow offers Tress up as a slave to the dragon Zysus. Want to want to double check on the audio says? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Lauren and I do not have the audiobook on this. So, but it is spelled X I S I S. I wanted to say Zesis, but Zysis. I I will accept Zysis in my head. Like, well, let's finish the recap. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But in turn, Tress offers Crow as a slave and that precipitates a standoff. Ultimately, after some convincing, Zysus takes Crow captive and allows Tress to leave with a couple of boons. Tress is returned to the ship and leads them onward to the Midnight Sea. Before they get there, however, Hoyd sabotages the ship and Tress realizes that Huck is a traitor. She takes a boat by herself, with Huck stowed away, and the Midnight Essences capture them. Tress and Huck finally arrive at the Sorceress's Tower. Tress meets the Sorceress at last, who trades Charlie back to her for two cups. As they're leaving, however, Tress realizes that that Charlie is a fake, and Huck was Charlie all along. Just at that moment, the crow's song sails in to help them, and Tress realizes she must bring Hoyt into the tower as well. The crew uses Tress's inventions to disable the awakened army on the island, and Hoyt enters the tower. His curse is broken, and with his help as a newly created Elantrian, Tress convinces the sorceress to leave the planet. In the end, Tress, Charlie, and the crew of their ship return to the rock. They help right the injustices of the Duke's rule before sailing off for a life on the Emerald Sea. So things got crazy at the end of this book. <laughs> it's it's not it's not an avalanche, but things happened. 
Yeah, like there's a there's a dragon with dragon steel. The word dragon steel was on the page. That it, it, it's just, yeah, yes, yes. That all of these <laughs> things are things. The thinged. Hoyd used aeons. <laughs> That's I'm. I've been processing that one for a long time. <laughs> there was a rocket ship. <laughs> that I I feel like I was better prepared for that one because <laughs> we have known about space travel in the Cosmere for a yeah while. yeah. Like, Sixth of the Dusk has prepared us for, for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there, there's just obviously some really crazy plot progression, Cosmere progression. Um, but before we really dive into that, let's just talk about, you know, kind of the style, the, the structure of the book. I think, Evgeny, you had a, a good point there. This isn't a typical Brandon Sanderson avalanche. It is, it is not, no. And uh, just before the beginning of the episode, I was gently reminded that I need to come up with favorite scenes. And I realized that that's going to be a little difficult. Like, I mean, I have a list, but see, individual scenes don't stand out to me as much in this book as they do in other Brandon books and and like like the entire book is not like when we talked about this last time right it's not monotone right it has ups and downs and you get more invested and less invested and, and like the the narrative flows it's not still mm-hmm. but the 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 ta- the 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 detail the, the fairy tale nature of the story kind of dulls the extremes a bit. Well, I think it's because Hoyd is telling this story. It's it's so much different than Brandon's normal perspective. And I think that kind of takes away some of the extremes, you know, because Hoyd is telling this from the future Therefore, we know that things ended up okay at some point, and we're not worried. Yeah, I think from the get go, this is an important distinction that, like, when we're talking, obviously, obviously, this is written by Brandon Sanderson. When we talk about Stormlighter Mistborn, it's written by Brandon Sanderson. But we can talk about Brandon Sanderson's normal voice and what he is concerned about as a writer and as a storyteller. And then we can talk about in world what Hoyt is concerned about as a storyteller. Yes. And Hoyt is not concerned about the same things. Right. We even get this in some chapters in, for instance, the Stormlight Archive, but really across the whole Cosmere. You know, I don't really consider this a spoiler. Hoyt appears in basically every Cosmere story, and he is often telling stories. Um, his stories have their own kind of feel. And that is very much the case with Tress of the Emerald Sea. Whereas Brandon Sanderson's overarching style is very cinematic and he loves writing these big action set pieces and fight scenes and things like that, that, uh, you know, like he wants, he wants it to play like a movie in your head. Hoyt doesn't tell stories the same way. And that's one of the, the things that I am most excited about to see from Brandon is that he's written a book that is so unlike what he's written before. 
I like seeing that versatility in an author. This is one of the reasons I love Glenn Cook, why I'm so impressed by what he did in The Black Company, how he uses different narrative voices with such ease. And Brandon, I wasn't really sure how how capable he was of doing that. Do you think he nailed it? Hoyd's voice? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I think he it's partially because he had some limited experience of like writing mini stories mm. in this sort okay. of a voice before. Uh, but it, it's, it's a more conversational style. It's, it feels like you're gathered around a, a campfire at night or something and somebody is telling you a story. And therefore there are like little interruptions of like asides and things. Yeah. 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 Like, he decided to talk about literally for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know what's yeah, a... seeing that, seeing that change, seeing that difference made me really happy as a critical reader of an author that I generally do love, but I have my criticisms of him. So this is him showing me something that I wasn't sure he could do. There is a, there's a specific scene that I have in mind where the difference between Brandon's voice and Hoyd's voice is particularly notable. And this happens Ooh. multiple times throughout the book. Like this is not unique to this one specific scene, but it's the one that comes to mind right now. And it's, uh, it is the chapter called the nightmare, which is when the two rain storms yeah. cross over the crow song in the crimson during like when the seethe has stopped yep and the, the previous chapter ends with uh oh the seethe stopped we should we should be fine as long as no rain would show but you can probably guess what happens next and we turn the page and the chapter is called the nightmare and throughout this chapter tress does her thing she saves the ship right she, she jumps overboard and, and controls and grows verdant to lift the ship above the spikes. But the chapter, only about half of the chapter is dedicated to this action scene, which is a very Brandon Sanderson action scene. The other half of the chapter is Hoyd's musings on nightmares and their purpose and how he has nightmares and their impact on people and so on. So it's it's this mixture of commentary on the world followed by a more traditional Brandon Sanderson action scene. And so if this were, you know, a Stormlight book or a Mistborn book, you would not have that first half. You yeah. um we're not in the full spoilers territory, but you can't imagine like the ending of Rhythm of War or Oathbringer interspersed with these kind of commentaries. Yeah, being mm. interrupted with mm. philosophical musings. Yeah. Which is funny because some of the other books that we've covered on Inking Out Loud absolutely are interrupted with those. I mean, I, I immediately think of Matthew Stover and the Acts of Cain and how there are moments in those books in the middle of brutal murderous fights that Cain takes time to consider the morality of his actions or the morality of what's going on around him or, you know, like 
And, and so seeing that in Sanderson here, uh, it was unexpected for me, but it was appreciated. And this is something that without spoilers, I don't think is necessarily limited to just this of the secret projects. Um, it's not as overt, but I, I'm excited for some of the future books that we're going to be covering because I want to talk about the other ways in which Brandon is doing different things from his normal writing style across all four of these books. I want to define. Yeah, I'm not touching the others. Messed yeah. me up. <laughs> where he goes on the rant about literally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I think, and he talks about the evolution of language and how language being evolving to be unclear is just like us and our souls. And, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, while, while I don't think you agree with it. <laughs> while you're looking up, I want to talk a little bit more about this. I, I think that this phenomenon could only have happened when it did organically in this way that Brandon has such a deliberate way of going about writing his books that he's not in a stage of his career that he would have even thought about trying to write something so different were he not given the opportunity that he had in 2020 to write something that he thought was private he originally wrote Tress of the Emerald Sea just for his wife just yep. and and then he wrote Secret Project 2 for himself you know, and, and it wasn't really until Secret Project 4 that he was like, yeah, these are going to get released eventually. I'm going to write this a little more like my normal style. But as a result, we we get stories that are, that feel to me more like the kind of thing that he would have written at the end of his career when he's like, I've done what I set out to do with my thing, and now it's time to have fun. But he had an opportunity earlier in his career to just have fun yeah it's i i don't want to compare that to oh uh regular books are like brandon's day job and he's dedicated to those and now <laughs> this is his hobby right because because they're not because the normal books that he writes are things that he is just as passionate about and things that he's oh, yeah. just as interested about right he's not taking a break per se from you know the stormlights and the mistborns to to do like or the style of those books to do this thing it's just a, a convenient opportunity that was like hey yeah. i get to i get to do this other thing that if i don't do now i probably won't get to for a very long time if ever yeah it, it, and it feels a little bit like alcatraz was for him earlier in his career where he got to just do this like wacky thing he didn't have all this pressure you know it, insane deadlines he wasn't the cash cow that he is now for his publishers where they're like yeah we need your book asap because we need to make money you know uh he was he was allowed as an author to sort of write what he wanted to and now his options are more limited he gets to write what he wants to to an extent but he's a little more boxed in by the demands of his life uh, you know especially where we are now in 2023, we know in a great deal of 2022, Brandon spent working on Hollywood projects. Like he's been working on video games and, you know, he has so many more demands on his time 
at this stage in his career that he wouldn't normally get to do these fun, random things that he got to do earlier in his career, or that he maybe was planning on doing at the end of his career when he can rest on his laurels a bit. And starting the company and really growing it in the past. Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) It does free him up a bit as we see with these secret projects, but at the same time it shackles him. Now there are people depending on him to keep this going, to keep a lot of it going. Yeah. And, and it's not just external pressures, right? It's also like he is personally committed to seeing, you know, the Cosmere finished by, I think recently he said by the time he's like 70, 72 or something like that. Which we're so thankful for. He has a a timeline, a, a timetable that he needs to follow for himself. And every time he strays off the path, Every time he pushes the Stormlight book back yep. six months, six 12 months, months yeah. that pushes everything. And mm-hmm. that's okay to do here and there. Like, I'm personally fine with Stormlight 5 being pushed back a year. I think this is like pushing back one book out of, you know, half of your series and then maybe maybe pushing Stormlight 10 back a year from its projected schedule. That's fine. Right, but if it if six is also delayed by a year, and then seven is also delayed by like yeah, then it starts adding up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, like the and the more you do that, the more the pressure builds internally and externally. I mean, we we've, we've already seen what that pressure of uh, finishing a series has done to somebody like Patrick Rothfuss. Yeah. You know, and and obviously Brandon has a dramatically different temperament from Patrick Rothfuss and and a different approach and and working style um but same with George R. R. But that doesn't mean he's immune to anxiety or or pressure like Yeah. If if like Evgeny said if we get to a point where suddenly Stormlight 7 and 8 and 9 have all been pushed back and now we're four years behind because of five, seven, and nine, five, seven, eight, and nine, Brandon's really feeling that time crunch at that point, you know? And so, so yeah, it's like, we got, we got really lucky with this book. We got really lucky with the secret projects in general, that he was given this gift of time and was able to play in sandboxes that his schedule would not have otherwise afforded. Uh, And I think it's going to make him a better writer. I really do. Uh, I'm super excited to read the next Cosmere book, Stormlight 5, that he releases after the Secret Projects. I want to see what lessons he he learned from himself in this. I, I have the sense that these books were discovery written in a way that he yeah. doesn't normally write. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, when the expectation is this is for me or this is for my family and this is not for. Yeah. And there will be things he found in the process of these books that he's like, you know what? I loved that. I want to do that more. How can I work that into what I've already been building in Mistborn or, or Stormlight or when I write Nightblood, if I write Nightblood, (laughs) you know, things like that. So I hope this reinvigorated him. 
I, I'm sure at some point his narrative juices are pretty drained. Mm-hmm. Like after every stormlight, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he certainly seemed excited during like the announcement season for these. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he had so much fun with it. <laughs> I mean, even for us as beta readers where we knew. I mean, we, we, you know, we told the story on the first episode about how he played that prank on us. Where he's like, there's one secret book. Surprise, there's four. And then on top of that, even when we knew there were four, we didn't know about the Kickstarter. You know, he he did that that prank video (laughs) the the day before the Kickstarter was announced or whatever. And like, and so he finds ways, and, and he's talked about how he, even before it went to betas, when he initially wrote these, the way he revealed it to his team was that he just like left blank unmarked manuscripts on a table and was like secret top secret read one (laughs) at a time or whatever and like it, it, it it just let people discover what they were like he is he is such a showman. <laughs> like I love that he did it to everybody. It wasn't just like yeah. one group of people. And he found different ways to do it to like increasingly larger groups of people. <laughs> it it's it feels like every few years I say that it's a great time to be a Sender fan. Yeah. And that is always true, but it's always for a different reason. Yeah. Yeah. What a ridiculous human being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, we've gone a little, a little <laughs> astray, but not honestly, not that much astray because this is all like tying back to the fact that this is a different sort of book. Um, and, and the fact that this doesn't have a traditional Sanderson avalanche, uh, it has a much neater denouement than we're used to in Brandon books. Uh, it, it has that. He really ties it back to a fairy tale feeling of, and they lived happily ever after. Yep. You know, yep. that is not something he typically does. He normally leaves his narratives, even when he ties up the major plot lines and character arcs, he leaves the narrative narratives open for further stories. He did it with Elantris. Warbreaker with Mistborn, you know, and, and here it's like, I mean, technically you could write another story on this world, but there isn't really any hanging narrative thread left for Tress. No. And, and I think I like it that way, actually. I, I think we're summed up and I don't see further growth for her. So a story with her. Yeah, like I As hope main, mm. in Mistborn Era 4, we get scenes on Lumar. That would be great. I would love that. I don't need another story set on Lumar like this. Mm, I mean, we have lots of ether questions, Drew. Well, those will get answered. I Maybe. mean, we're going to get the ether of Night Trilogy and Mistborn Era 4. Okay, but, but these are what? And maybe Mistborn different... Secret History 2 that follows... Other characters Maybe. that I'm not going to say Maybe. that might involve ethers. <laughs> I'm I'm making that up wholesale. If you haven't read any of Mistborn and you're listening to this episode, don't worry, that didn't spoil anything. Um, this is my like 
heartfelt desire. I have no idea if Brandon is planning this, but I would love it if he did a particular story around a Mistborn secret history that involved ethers. So, (laughs) (laughs) but, but yeah, like I, I don't feel, you know, and, and we just had a conversation on discord earlier today about, um, uh, Arcanum Unbounded as a leather bound and how Brandon has pseudo promised. We'll finally get a Nalthus essay in, in that. Yeah. And it was like, well, what is he going to do? Like, where is he going to fit that in? Cause there's no Nalthus short story. And I said that I was like, you know, it would be great if he wrote a Nalthus short story, but I don't want a continuation of Warbreaker. I don't want, him to try to like condense Nightblood into a novella or something like that. What I would want is a, a, a low stakes story about different characters just engaging in a strange environment. Something like, like Six of the Dusk. Like this? Or this. Or Shadows yeah. for Silence in the Forest of Hell. Um, and and you know so with I this, want? it's like this was low stakes. Those stakes have been like solidified. I don't need another story like this on this world. I would take a different one, yeah. Um, I agree with you. But I think there's an opportunity here for a high-stakes story. Because well, we are in a world... Well, that's what I see Era 4 as. And that's why I could see, like, something happening in Mistborn Era 4 taking place on Rumor. Okay, sure. Yeah, that that'd be that'd be fine with me. I want to distract you. Okay. okay. All right. Lauren's got a quote. So I feel like this is coming more from Brandon than it is from Hoyd. Okay. <laughs> a lot of Hoyd comes from Brandon. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So he's talking about the, about irony. And he talks about how grammarians bemoan the word, the words misuse. And it's second only to the dictional assassination to the way some people use the word <laughs> literally, their use of which is ironic. I'm not one of those people who care if you use words wrong. I prefer it when words change meaning. The imprecision of our language is a feature. It best represents the superlative fact of human existence, that our own emotions, even our souls, are themselves impre- imprecise. Our words, like our hearts, are weapons still hot from the forging, beating themselves into new shapes each time we swing them. You see, that's good metaphor. Why doesn't Brandon do that kind of metaphor more often? (laughs) Okay, but how do you feel about literally and uh, the change, like the imprecision, the marching I mean, he's, he's not wrong. That is a phenomenon. That is how language evolves. Sometimes language evolves in a way that pisses me off, though. I mean, yeah. evolving towards imprecise is should piss you off because it's harder yeah. and harder to understand but, what people are saying. But also, we're fighting the heat death of the universe, so. <laughs> <laughs> Priorities, right? I expected you to go on a rant. I guess literally it's, a losing it's, been, battle. Uh, it's been bad for a long time. If, if you had asked me that question when I was 18 instead of when I'm 32, uh, I would have probably gone on a long rant about it uh it does still frustrate me from time to time how 
you know, how language does evolve to become more imprecise and, and it forces constant adjustments to relearn. Not always. Jargon is more precise. You just don't get to go I, I would, in I would argue jargon. that it is always and, and it's always in a uh, macro sense. In certain instances, yes, language evolves to be more precise, but on the large scale, it evolves to be less precise. If it is used by all and people brought into a language, yeah, but nobody had, you know, the words to describe atoms and chemistry the way that we do now. Right. Yeah, sure. So I can make an argument. Yeah, I'm not saying that there aren't cases where language becomes more precise. Yeah. I'm saying that on the whole, the aggregate of evolution of language tends toward imprecision. Mm. <laughs> but I, I... And here we get into linguistics arguments on the Inking Out Loud podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. I will say I, I really saw that... I thought that things like literally were... The, like the changing definition of words like that were a feature of like our generation and oh no and then i heard somebody on nbc who's in their 60s use it incorrectly and i was like okay <laughs> yeah no 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 um this has been a, a phenomenon basically as long as humans have had language <laughs> I mean, I used to get corrected. Now nobody corrects anybody. Like, if I said, I'm done with dinner, my parents would say, no, you're not. You are finished with dinner, and the cake in the oven is done. Oh, yeah. Lauren Lauren does that to me all the time. Like, I'll say <laughs> I'm done, and Lauren's like, oh, like a cake? You don't, <laughs> but you'll you don't get me on good. something. Superman but it's really good. funny, because I remember... Uh, early in my Spanish education, here's some insight into the sort of student that Drew McCaffrey was. Um, I specifically like figured out, I, I looked up well ahead of, you know, the, the time frame of learning conjugations of non, you know, non present tense, you know, uh, but I learned how to say, I have finished. <laughs> e terminado. And like the first time I said that, I, I I can't remember if it was sixth or seventh grade. I think it was sixth grade. But like, you know, we were working on some assignment in Spanish class and I raised my hand and I said, e terminado. And my teacher, you know, like immediately came over and she's like, oh, you know, great. And, and took took my paper and then kind of like stopped and was like, wait a second, how did you know that conjugation? And I was like, I don't know what conjugation means, but I worked it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and so there, there is, I don't want to, I don't want to like argue against the point that Lauren is making because, you know, at a, at a pretty foundational level, I agree with your point. It is frustrating. I'm just getting exhausted fighting a losing battle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad Brandon's cool with it, apparently. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do we have any more style things and, or, or should we jump right into character here? Cause we have some juicy character things to talk about. Um, we did talk a lot about style last time. Yes. And the style hasn't changed between the two parts or the two. Parts. Yeah. That's kind of how I'm feeling here. Uh, like the most notable thing for me was the avalanche or lack thereof. Um, the more like traditional verbal storytelling, oral storytelling style. Um, the one thing that I wanted to bring up, and I could have done this last time, I can do this this time, was the chapter titles. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, because they are, and, and I don't, they evoke a certain feeling, and I don't know what that feeling is. Like I, I was randomly at a bookstore a couple of weeks back, and I was just mm-hmm. like leafing through uh, pretty leather-bound books, uh, most of which were like classical literature and stuff. And a couple of them, including I think Moby Dick, had similar, just similarly descriptive titles in that it is the thing or the, the person like yeah 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 um and so it reminds me of that a little bit i guess but it was it's it's definitely a stylistic choice on on brandon's part and they are definitely different from like mistborn's numeric titles and stormlight's more evocative metaphorical they are often quotes from the book title mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we may cut this. I don't know. I'll, I'll probably like ask Peter if, if I'm allowed to talk about this. Um, probably but like, not. With Stormlight especially, beta readers are encouraged to submit oh, yeah. options for chapter titles. And so as a result, you get chapters being named in Stormlight by like 20 different people. And so you're not going to get any kind of uniformity there. Yeah, we don't uh, know, but, but Emily fine. picks them. Emily, yeah, Emily is the one who chooses, yeah. Uh, and, which and is, of course, she... a wonderful homage to Robert Jordan and how Harriet named all the chapters in the Wheel of Time. Uh, but, but yeah, so there's, like, the, just by necessity, you don't get the same cohesion in style that you're going to get with these and, and I totally get what you mean. Like, there is an old-timey feel, a directness to the chapter titles that I think uh, helps build up the, the fairy tale feel. You know, if, if you're... You know what really helps? What's that? What really helps, I, I just realized, is that by naming all of the chapters after... Not people, not events, but after the roles that people play in those chapters, mm-hmm. that contributes a lot to the fairy tale feel of things. Right? Ooh. We don't. Yeah, definitely. You know what? I'm gonna and... grab the Sorry, go Oh ahead. yeah, yeah. Go grab it. It's on the shelf to the left of the TV. Uh, yeah, like it's that. That's a a real thing. Um. Uh, one of the things with fairy tales is that there are larger than life archetypes and morals in the stories. And so when you take 
this idea of a traitor or a nightmare or an explorer or, you know, whatever you, and then attach it to a character. It, it's one of those ways it works in the same way that fairy tales work for young children to help them assign meaning beyond their immediate experience. Okay, so, yeah, it's it's the same in The Princess Bride. Oh, Chapter 1, cool. The Bride. Chapter 2, The Groom. Uh, chapter 4, The Preparations. Just, yeah, flipping through the book. They're all the noun. Uh, the festivities. I would, I would, by the way, like to point out that where in The Princess Bride, 1 and 2 are the bride and the groom, in Tress, it, chapter 1 is the girl, Chapter two and is the, the groundskeeper. Or the ah, groundskeeper, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. I like that. Good job, Brandon. Turns <laughs> out he did his research. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't read this, have you? No, I haven't. Yeah, I I think we no. talked about that last we episode as well. We talked about it last time. We definitely talked about it because I just edited that episode mm. and I wouldn't have thought about that if I hadn't just listened to it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I, I yeah. love, by the way, that amidst all of the chapters which are like the explorer, the carpenter, the cursed man. There's uh, one. There's one that's the maligned fashion expert. Yes. <laughs> I remember, like, I noticed it this time. I did not notice it. Now, I want to say in the beta, they didn't have chapter titles. I don't remember. Uh, typically in beta reads, we don't get chapter titles. Oh, it did? Typically we don't, but this time we did. Oh, man. Oh, fail on my part then, because I definitely didn't notice. Uh, but, I, but I think this one changed. <laughs> oh, okay. But yeah, like there... Or, or, well, I don't know that, but I also don't remember this one from beta. They do get more descriptive, descriptive as they go. You know, part one, we have five chapters. The girl, the groundskeeper, the duke, the son, the bride. Part two, the inspector, the father, the stowaway, the rat, the sprouter, the thief, the crow. So like they get more um, progressively more descriptive and, and maybe esoteric as they go. And then we start getting into uh, part three. Chapter 16 is the corpse. Chapter 18 is the other corpse, you know. And then in part four, we get ch chapter titles like the assistant cannon master, the extra good listener, the spore eater, the king's mask, the midnight essence. So we start getting adjectives and not just descriptive nouns. And then, yeah, and then we get in part six, the maligned fashion expert <laughs> in the middle of some, like a return to form in part one, where all the chapter titles in part six are the valet, the hypocrite, the traitor, the maligned fashion expert, the monster, the prisoner, the sorceress, the man, the hunter, the pilot, the hero. So that really does stand out like that. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that feels very Hoyd. Like that feels like Hoyd was actively naming these chapters himself. <laughs> I... It, it's appropriate both in that way and in the 
Hoyd doesn't have all his faculties in this book. And so, yes, the chapter that's about him is going to be weird. I will say, so the first read, I was very focused on Tress. The second read, I felt like it's more of Hoyd's story, less hers. In fact, half the time, she's even crowded out by Charlie, who's more described and expressed than she is. Man, on I have to admit, my first reading of this, I did not pick up on Charlie being Huck until oh yeah, embarrassingly well, embarrassingly late, in the book. late for me too. Yeah, yeah, and and I've been watching people like live blog and react online, and they like pick up on him in like chapter twenty or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I I hit you. stuff like this time where I was just like, <laughs> oh my god, really? Well, but like, yeah, when so. It is so when, obvious. When read, <laughs> in hindsight, there are so many hints all throughout. And like people yes. are correctly identifying the hints, right? Yeah. Not it, me. And that's like the funny thing is that uh, Brandon, man, like he is such a master of foreshadowing. Yeah. Um, even even now, I've talked about this, you know, as we've covered Sanderson on Inking Out Loud over the last few years. I've read an awful lot of Brandon Sanderson an awful lot of times. And I am getting to a point now where there are certain things that I just know are going to happen in his books because that is the way Brandon Sanderson yeah. crafts Dramatic stories. irony specifically is the one that, oh, I've, that yeah. I've attuned really well to. But... Despite that, he always finds at least one thing to surprise me with in every book. And and that's like, you know, the, a similar phenomenon. You talk about how there are people online now who probably aren't as like hardcore analytical readers of Brandon Sanderson who picked up on this immediately when I didn't. But they probably also are missing things that I picked up on. And so Brandon has this way of like, he's not just good at one kind of foreshadowing. He's good at every kind of foreshadowing. And so for some readers, you're going to pick up the things that you are inclined to notice and you're going to miss the others. And like, I think that's a big part of why he has become such a popular author. He has universality in not just, you know, the, the, the lives of his characters and, and he goes out of his way to, you know, gives give broad representation among a diverse array of human beings in his stories. Uh, not just he writes fun action scenes, but like he writes stories that a wide variety of people can enjoy a wide variety of readers, people who focus on different things can all find something to identify with. Yeah. And, and foreshadowing specifically is, is a big one for me. I think uh, like, when people talk about what they love about the Cosmere, oftentimes it's the characters and oftentimes it's the interconnectedness of the universe. And oftentimes, but, but I feel like more often than not, like I think the most universal thing that is beloved by everyone who reads Brandon is like how the foreshadowing builds to the climax and to the, to the, to the Brandon avalanche. And you like, that is, so universal you 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 don't really have a brandon book without that yeah 
Yeah. You're, you're totally right. I mean, it's, you go back to the very first Brandon Sanderson published novels, Mistborn, Final Empire, and Elantris. And those features are there. And they have stayed there through 16 or 17 years of his career now. So I think that's a good point to, to jump over to characters, though. Yeah, and that's that's let's all I talk have for about style. Charlie, because we had to kind of restrain ourselves last episode to not go into the fact that Huck is Charlie. Um, I know Tress is the main character, but I want to talk Huck. Yeah. yeah. I loved the way Brandon set up the curses that he made Huck into an antagonist, but not an antagonist, right? Like, like he was an opponent. Maybe that's, that's what it is. He wasn't an antagonist, but he was an opponent where she had to, in, in a, a similar way to how she had to navigate Hoyd's curse, she had to figure out without the um, the immediate knowledge of it like she had with Hoyd, but she had to figure out how to work around his curse with Huck. And with Hoyd, she, she was like, I know you have a curse, and then overtly realized, I need to work with and around this to find my answers. And then she, you know, gets her her positive through a negative because the one place he wouldn't talk about is the island, you know? Um, but with Huck, it was, you know, it, it was more of a subconscious thing. And, and so there was a really good interplay between their characters there. I liked that. Where like, he could only say things if he had different motives around them. Yeah. Yeah. Like telling her uh, the defenses because he wants to keep her away. Mm-hmm. And scare her. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. If Guinea doesn't seem thrilled by this. <laughs> no, it's because I was thinking of something else about Huck. Um, oh, okay. I was thinking about the difference in character between Charlie the man that we see in part one and Huck the rat that we mm-hmm. see in the rest of the parts. Um, and I think last time I talked about how I felt like, or if I didn't, I'll just talk about it now. Um, yeah. I felt like throughout the book, so, so the way this story read to me was like a story that was going to have Tress outgrow who she was and who Charlie was. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. at the That's end, she was going to like go on her merry way right save mm-hmm. charlie but be like okay look you are you're great you're cute go back home i will go raid the seven seas or the 12 seas right i will right. help the crew the people that i've built real relationships with yeah whereas yeah. i just had a child heart, relationship yeah. with you we will yeah. over yep. overthrow the government we will rule this like seas with and eat <laughs> the rich and all of that yeah yeah um Seize the means of production, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, on on skimming through the book again, and, and so I was partially disappointed that she ended up with Charlie. Sure. Going through the book again, 
I am less disappointed because I was reminded of how much Charlie himself has grown. Yes. But, but the thing is, we only see that growth while he's a rat. And I think that's the thing that, that threw me off the first time. Like, yeah. I mean, obviously he's rat even after the resolution, except for the epilogue. But mm -hmm. the moment she realizes who she is or who uh, Huck is, the way they start talking reverts back to the way they talked back in part one. And I think that's where my disappointment came. It like because it was. Like, I wasn't getting this more grown and yeah. adult version of Charlie that we had really been seeing throughout the entire book. I was seeing part one Charlie. It's like they regressed. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I totally that makes understand sense. that. Yeah. And, and but, if I, but if I ignore that, if I'm like, oh, she's with not rat charlie but like the character that we've seen all throughout this is a more mature and more adult version then yeah okay i am she has grown but so has he yes and now they are an unacceptable match for in my eyes i, I still would have preferred her yeah, to be pirate like he did his growth he had his adventure out before he was yeah sold to the sorceress Yep. And she kind of took and, away his whimsy. And she was stagnant. She was static during that time. And then he now has been turned into a rat and is more or less static, in large part due to the curse, uh, while she is dynamic and growing and yeah. catching up to him. Well, the, the sorceress took away the features that we saw in the beginning, where he's like happy and whimsical and like tells all these stories and is interested in all these things and he can't even be himself because she'll know and he knows that she'll know i except but his also lips. he's changed he's changed like she took away his his joy and his lightness and so did his father hmm. to a large extent yeah yeah um he he hasn't changed as, as as much as as you make it sound to be and and the main reason i say that well two two reasons on multiple occasions throughout the book when tress is feeling down for for whatever reason she either meets with huck or he joins her or whatever and it is him telling her about the made-up rat population on whatever island or his adventures on whatever island or his history as a talking rat. Like, it is his stories that often bring her peace. And I believe it is the very first time they meet, and I didn't catch this on the first read, but I caught it on a reread. Uh, the very first time they meet, he starts... Uh, that's in the cage, right? In the first ship? Yeah. In the Oots dream. Um, he starts talking about things and, and she's like, you are a very loquacious rat, which is exactly, I mean, obviously she doesn't call Charlie rat, but loquacious is exactly how she refers to as Charlie as well. Uh, hmm. Yeah. I mean, and as a rat, he does tell stories the same way, like he gets lost in the story the same way that Charlie did back on the rock. I yeah. guess I didn't I didn't see it as much. 
Huh. Okay. Yeah. But that, I mean, that just goes to show how, like, for some readers, some types of foreshadowing that Brandon does just kind of sinks into the narrative and you don't even notice yes. it until yes. your second read or your third read sometimes. And Or until yeah. someone points yeah. it out. Yeah, or until right. someone points it out. Right. Yeah. Which is what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Do we have anything more about Huck that we want to talk about? Or shall we move on to other characters? Hmm. Move on. He might come up. Like, maybe Hoyd? Are you ready or for do that? Or do we want to just say Hoyd for the Cosmere full spoiler conversation at the end of this? Yeah, maybe. It's, we may be able to split it but it's probably going to be much easier yeah. if we just save him for okay. the end. Yeah, that's fair. That's Tress? fair. Okay, I don't know how much more I honestly have to say about Tress in the second half of the book. Um, I I don't think she did a lot of growing in the second half. Hoyt illustrates um, it for us. For me, her growth was mostly in that middle third of the book. Drew, um, Hoyt points it out in these chapters where she has to figure out that it's okay to ask for help and to allow others to help yeah. you. Sure, sure. But that's like... <sighs> and to trust people and to let them trust you and to... Like, I mean, I guess... Do you mean that it's just because she's in a leadership role and she's never been in a leadership role? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like... I, I feel like she was shaped more by circumstance in the second half of this book than she was by her own initiative in the first half. Like, she did think she took initiative in the second half. I'm not saying she was a passive character, but she didn't deliberately put herself in situations. Here, she took action, and as a result of that action, got forced into new circumstances and then had to adjust. And uh, I think a lot of the first half was her more directly taking control of her circumstances, like putting herself into the the role of um, Sprouter, the Sprouter, the on Inspector, the yeah. Oh, and Sprouter, yeah, yeah. I can see that. Yeah, uh, okay. she was a lot more reactive in the second half, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that is to an extent because of the way the story is structured, right? Uh, at the at the end of the first half, we are we 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 find out that we are going to be going to the Crimson Sea, but Tress is going to be the sacrifice, right? And yeah. from that point on, like for a while, she takes the initiative in that uh, she's like, well, I will I will have to deal with Crow. I will build. I will figure out like the flare gun, and I will just trap her, and we'll take over the ship, and pretty much once the mutiny kind of starts and fails instantly, she is a little bit on the back foot. Yeah, definitely. Uh, or, or, or maybe even like as soon as they go down to, to Zysis, right? So, um, such a good scene. In that she reacts to Crow offering her as a sacrifice. And then, yes, she wins. She comes back up. Um, they, they go to the Midnight she goes and tries to mind control an essence and she fails. Mm -hmm. 
and Huck is there to save her. Uh, and then they go to the Tower of the Sorceress, and obviously Huck is there to provide entrance. And they go up there, and she can't do anything like she's trapped. And so from that point on, her robe becomes like... Essentially, from the moment they get to the Midnight Sea, I think, her role is to accept help from others. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I have seen some criticism of this book on this count. And I'm not going to say it's totally unfounded. Uh, like, like that—that that is the reality of it. She is, in the climax of the story, a reactive character rather than a proactive character. But I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, I I think it still ends up satisfying, and she's still framed as the hero. Uh, it's you could take a, a really cynical uh, interpretation of the title of that last chapter and say that Hoyd's talking about himself Hoyt, there, yeah. but I I don't think Hoyd is really trying to do that. I think Hoyd is using the story as a uh, a vehicle to say there can be different kinds of heroes. You don't need to be an all-powerful magic user to be the hero. You can be a different sort of person and, and be the central figure in the story. I agree. And if the entire book had been dominated by like this version of Tress where right. she is constantly being saved by other people and accepts help from other people or like to frame it more charitably if the entire book had been about her learning to accept help right then it would have been far less satisfying it would have been yeah, yeah that's not that but because we spent more than half of the book with Tress showing proactivity and leadership skills and compassion and um, what's the word I'm looking for when you're good at, at something? Dexterity? Um, the competency? Competency, yes. Um, because we spend so much time showing that Tress is all of these things, then it's a lot more acceptable to go, well... Yeah okay, she has gotten to, like, she is now out of her depth. She can't do everything by herself. But she has built all of these relationships with all of these people. So let's go team. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, this was something that occurred to me during our conversation in the first episode. Um, and, and I didn't bring it up at the time because it would deal with end of story things. But had she been the same character throughout the whole book, I think you start flirting with Mary Sue yeah. doesn't have flaws territory. Yep. And by giving her these flaws and putting her in situations that she does need other people to help fix her mistakes, you know, that makes her feel like a more real human character. And it's just, you know, it's a choice of, you know, on the author's part of where you put those mistakes in the narrative yep. and what your philosophy is on how satisfying that is. Because 
for some people, like clearly I have already seen people online complaining that she needed help in the climax oh, from on. men, of course, you know. Yep. Come on. Um, and women. Sorry, it's mostly women. But Yeah, but Hoyt saves the day. True. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw one person being like the the whole moral of this story is that women need to stay in their place because it's the men who it's two men who save her in the end. And I was like, Come you totally misread the on. point of this story. But oh let me let me add more on top of that. Uh it also undermines Anne's story. Yeah. Because Laggart shows up to help her. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I was like, you should you should probably read The Princess Bride and then see how Brandon is writing this story to you know understand like what the point of this particular fairy tale really is. Um (laughs) Lauren's Lauren's angry. (laughs) <laughs> I'm tired of these like petty excuses. Your strengths are your strengths, yeah. but you're not everything. And you know what? The like hero woman in fantasy trope has gotten old. Well, it will so yeah. Like I, the, we can talk the about... badass trope where she does everything and she <laughs> doesn't need anybody. Yeah, I think that's exactly yeah, what Brandon is working against here. And this is something that he often works against not all the time because vin exists um but he is he is a big fan of writing quote unquote strong female characters which is in and of itself a cliche at this point but he's a he's a fan of writing strong female characters who are not badass female characters he is because they end up clones of each other yeah and that's unrealistic and boring yeah they all end up being like assassins with knives or they're, or they're um. <laughs> supposed to be Mary Sue's where like, ooh, I could see myself doing that. Well, and so what we end up happening is that he allows his female characters to be in traditionally female or traditionally male roles and succeed in them and like, learn in them. Yeah. And, and so if we talk about Tress in specific here, to prevent her from being a flawless Mary Sue type character, he has to make her fail at some point in the story. He has to give her flaws. He could have her fail at the beginning, but that would mean she is uber competent and just skates through the climax of the book. And that is narratively unsatisfying. So while there may be like, you know, depending on your perspective, uh, there may be criticisms of the way she fails and how she has to like get help to get through these obstacles at the end of the book. It is ultimately a more tense and narrative narratively fulfilling way to go about it than just have her fail small scale early on when it doesn't really matter that much, learn her lessons and then show up at like, you know, level 25 to fight a level 17 boss. Right. Like I, I would have liked just a little bit more agency from her at the very end. Yeah. Um, That is not to say that she doesn't have any, right? She realizes that uh, she was supposed to take Hoyd there, right? And and so she gives commands, right? She figures out how to use the magic board of the sorceress to contact the crow song, things like that. So it's not that she doesn't do anything. I would have liked a little... A little bit more, like mm-hmm. like ten percent more. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. It would have been fun to see her find some way to use ethers inside the tower. That would have been cool. But yeah, also yeah. that that introduces its whole other mess. Yeah, nest of worms for like Evgeny in specific to figure out. <laughs> She will not have been able to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too much silver. Well, but, I mean, and then I mean, it... You also have the risk of making your villain look not scary. Yep. Or incompetent. Yep. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. I, I mean, mean, Ryana is very intimidating. She's also a little comically evil for my taste. But that's a fairy tale. Like, that is a thing that, to me, was like, Hoyd clearly doesn't like this woman, and he is embellishing how evil she is. Like, Oh, I kind of like that, actually. Sure. <laughs> like, he's got an axe to grind here. Clearly. <laughs> I like that. I can accept that, but it, it didn't it didn't quite land for me. I, okay. Yeah, okay. I, I get it. Yeah. Like having her pinned up against the wall and just like watching everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess how is she supposed to break that? But can we do it in a way where she like, I don't know, is trapped in a cage and figures out a way to open the bars a little bit? Like she's trying to help herself while others are getting there too. I, I, I mean, I'm yeah. not sure what I wanted, yeah. but. Yeah, like I. When we get into details, I'm like, I don't want to try to rewrite another author's book. Right, right. This is something Rob and I got into a lot with the Dresden Files, where it's like, I'm going <laughs> to criticize the <laughs> out of Jim Butcher, but I'm not going to try to rewrite his books for him. Um, <laughs> because, like, let's be honest here. When when you come down to it, Jim Butcher is a better writer than Drew McCaffrey. Brandon Sanderson is a better writer than Drew McCaffrey. Is Jim Butcher a better writer? Or is yes. he just a published writer? I appreciate you, but Jim Butcher is a better writer than Drew McCaffrey. <laughs> I don't know about that. If I released any of my books right now, there would be plenty of podcasts out there who would have a field day tearing them apart. I'm very sure of that. I think you got, <laughs> I think there's a lot of luck involved. I've read some pretty. Well, no, no. I mean, talking about getting published is an entirely different conversation. But I, I'm just saying, Jim Butcher, for what he does in the Dresden Files, um, he has something going on there that he has gotten very good at doing writing a specific type of story. So, so yes, I'm not going to cast any value judgments um, on, <laughs> on uh, myself relative to other authors, and I'm not going to try to rewrite their stories. But, you know, like any reader reserves the right to criticize the stories they read. That is the nature of consuming media. You're sure. allowed to like or dislike things. And you're allowed to like or dislike specific things in specific ways. Mm. Um, and, and this is one of the things, you know, all three of us are beta readers. This is one of the things that in my mind, as both a writer and a beta reader, identifies a good beta reader. Is when you are capable of articulating the problems you have with a story without trying to fix the problem for the author. Because it's not your story. 
you say like, hey, this scene didn't work for me because of XYZ. Hey, I don't like the way this character is acting because of A, B, C, D, E. You know, you don't say, I don't like this scene. You should change it to this. Like, that's not valuable feedback. Um, you know, and, and that's that's part of the reason that, like, I, I very often, you know, when people ask me about being a beta reader for Brandon, I tell them, like, it is not something that is that everybody's cut out for because a lot of people have that inclination. And on top of that, like it's work to learn like the proper way to go about things. Uh, it, it, and I don't just mean proper in terms of etiquette, but I mean proper in terms of like, how can you be valuable to the author you're trying to help? So, sorry, I just went on like a rant, but that was like, that was a Drew being an author rant. And those happen every once in a while. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Let's talk about other characters. Other characters. Um, Anne Soleil. I mean, Anne is wonderful. Anne's the best. <laughs> Anne's the best. She's She's probably my favorite character in this book. After reading it a third time, I'm like, yeah, Anne's my girl. (laughs) (laughs) I do like her a lot. She was a fun, fun character. And it's funny because like we talked about in the first episode, she is in a lot of ways, a Brandon Sanderson comic relief character. But unlike every other Brandon Sanderson comic relief character, I love her. She's fantastic. Um, well, it's more situational humor, right? With her, where she like she can't help that she's so drawn to the guns and she wants to use them so badly, and people keep taking them away from her. <laughs> <laughs> and and <sighs> I can't get over the fact that until the very end, like in the in the last scene, when Tress is like, "Get her." And and like Soleil does a power stance and Hoyd and Anne somehow forward. draws three guns and Anne draws three guns. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's it. That's exactly what it is. She is funny because of what she does, not what she says. And so yeah. much of Brandon's comic relief characters are about what they say. Yeah, and I yes. Yeah. I'm generally not as like high on Brandon's dialogue in general, but especially sure. not as humorous dialogue. Are you annoyed with Hoyt the whole time then? Not the whole time. Um, there are definitely points, especially in Stormlight. Um, there are definitely points where I'm just rolling my eyes at. No, in this book. No, in this book, uh, he's okay. <laughs> when, when he's trying to be funny, he's Okay. There are absolutely points in this book where Hoyt is trying to be funny that I'm, again, rolling my eyes. Oh, as a narrator. Yeah. yeah. Sure, sure. Whatever. But also, it's like a lot of it, when it's Hoyt as a character in the story presently, um, he's not being witty because he can't be witty because he's cursed. Yep. And <laughs> and so that, that's a different sort of humor entirely from the standard sanderson dialogue-based humor yeah but it's do you more like it? goofy i don't hate it do you it's, like it's it? not like the funniest thing i've ever read but some of it's funny okay okay like i i am a person who loves dry cynical and sarcastic 
humor. That is not Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> How do you feel then, Evgeny? Um, I don't know if I have meaningful opinions on on humor because it it is rare enough that it bothers me. And so it's most of the time it either works for me or it's kind of transparent to me. Like I forget about it very quickly. And so it doesn't leave an impression on me. And so I remember, you know, there are more highlights, an unknown number of forgettable moments and a relatively few uh, failures. Okay. And so overall it's, it's fine. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's such a subjective thing. Like, humor's just going to land for some people and not others. And it just so happens that Brandon Sanderson's sense of humor is not Drew McCaffrey's sense of humor. This is one of the reasons, like, nah, that's that's a conversation for a different episode. Um, It's a conversation we've had on Making Out Loud in many other episodes on Scott Lynch and Glenn Cook and Matthew Stover and Diana Wynn Jones and any other. Have you done a Diana Wynn Jones? Yeah, we did uh, Dark Lord of Dirk Wow. Yeah. With Danny Felcandy, our wonderful artist. It's a great episode. If you haven't listened to it, you should go listen to it or read the book and then go listen to it. Maybe I should read the book first. It's fun. It's a it's a breezy, fast, fun book. Yeah. She also wrote Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, it's good. It's good. It's not like the movie. I'm not saying the movie's I bad. I've I'm not just saying the movie. Good. I say ah because I know the name. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. So the the moral of this story is that Anne is great, and even though I keep spelling her name A N N E, and I know it's A N N. Why are you doing that? I don't know. It's just like it looks weird when I don't spell it with the E. Because English is a dumb language. Did you spell spell Ixis wrong too? Zysis. There's no Y. I didn't spell it. No, but that's the way Kramer says it. Okay. Yeah, I checked with Evgeny because he has the audiobook before we did the episode. Oh, I thought you said it with a Y. Whatever. X-I. Yeah, yeah. S-I-S. Yeah. We'll get to him. Yeah, yeah. Zysus is also um, going to be a Cosmere. Actually, I don't, I don't know if he has to be a Cosmere. He doesn't have to be. Like, I mean, mostly he's not. His impact on this story is not Cosmere. Correct. The some of the things that he does that is true. are Cosmere. There are things to talk about with him that are Cosmere. I don't know. Just as a character, though, like great dragon, great dragon character. He's got the weight that you need for a dragon. And the careless. Yeah. Like, he's not consumed with other people's wants or needs. He's consumed with his yeah. own. And you serve. I liked the, the dragon's horde. Um, oh, yeah. They collect uh, ideas. That does. He's like, I've never seen a dragon that really care about material stuff. They love knowledge, though. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and that's what he's going for. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately, um, that's kind of what gets Zeises to to send Crow away, right? Uh, she interrupts one too many times, mm-hmm. uh, and and he's like, oh, "You shush, get wrapped in this piece of cloth, get out of here." Yeah, well, he knows her type. He's met them before. He's very old, and she's not anything new. Whereas Tress, maybe is. Maybe he'll see what she does. Yeah. I don't know. It was interesting. Also the cloth. Should we yeah, get to that we'll, later? We'll get to the cloth later. We will very much get to the cloth later. Because there are things to talk about with the cloth. <laughs> <laughs> um, none of which have anything to do with the established magic in this story. So... It's a very fine cloth. Yeah. Yeah. Really good for summer. Really, really breeze. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So. Soleil and Fort, and do we have anything on them? I don't have much more to say about them. Like, you know, they, they get their they get their moments. And what about Doug? And Doug. And Doug? I did like Doug. how... Hoyd pointed out, he's like, the Doug thing is a joke. I know their names. Here's this one, this one Doug who died. I'm going to memorialize him. That was, this is his real name. He and his sister were serving on the ship. You know, this is their story. He was carrying, I got some like black company vibes from that. Almost like the, the memorialization of just a sentence or two of, this person mattered. I may paint them as part of an indecipherable background, but this was a person that I knew and cared about, and I remember them. That really hit some emotional beats for me, even though we didn't know them. Like him, him taking that, that was a good chapter. Off, yeah, like yeah. that. That really that actually teared me up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was sad. That's good stuff. Yeah. yeah, but it was only because he ripped the cloth away like and told the story yeah which is great storytelling if he had left it just as like and doug died another doug yeah it's so easy and it's i think this is a point brandon is making like on a meta level where he's saying it's so easy for human lives to be reduced to just background and, and you forget the yep. impact of what a, a single human being can have. And, you know, and, and so he's like, he made a joke out of that. And then he turned the joke into an emotional gut punch. Yeah. That was, that was really skilled. Good. That really was skilled. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm we, getting I'm getting antsy though. I want to talk. <laughs> Actually, no. Before yeah, we get I think, into Cosmere, I think we're out of characters. Before we get into Cosmere, there's one important thing that we have to talk about. Hmm. The artwork. Yeah. Yep. I was gonna bring that up during art during style, and I forgot. Yeah. We gotta talk about the artwork. Holy cow! It is wonderful. Um, just the chapter headings, the chapter numbers. Yeah. 
I saw somebody on Reddit already made like a, a progressive GIF. An animation. So oh, really? good. So good. Really? Yeah. Like, ugh. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I, uh, during, during Gamma, I actually like went and like cut them from my PDF and put them in like a single oh, image I like file because oh. I wanted to look at all of them. Yeah. <laughs> They are they are very Howard Lyon just knocked it out of the park with this. Yeah. And the way he spoke um, about it, he really enjoyed himself. Can we talk about the one chapter, the transition between the Crimson and the Midnight? Verdant and and no, it was Verdant to Crimson. Mm, is because Crimson is on the right. Right. No, wasn't there one that was like? Um, all right, let me let me let me look. The first midnight chapter is uh, the one where we see the midnight essence. Right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the crimson and midnight it transitions from red to black. Oh, you mean the chapter? Okay, no, I thought you meant the like the full spread illustration. Oh yeah, no, no, yeah, the chapter fifty-eight. Um. It yeah. goes from half red or, or all red and giant and spiky. And then suddenly there's black eating into it. <laughs> and the, yeah. and then, and then the black girls as they transition into, yeah. into the middle. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. So good. Like the, the, the art direction in this is incredible. The, the way he uses black and white and gray with the one highlight color for each of these illustrations you know, yeah. where she starts with the, the green dress and the green spores or the moon or whatever. And then by the end of it, like, man, I'm sorry. That illustration of the midnight essence around Tress in the boat with haunting, the red jacket. Haunting, haunting. So good. Oh. So good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like the one that is... Um, uh, Tress, Tress on the helm, like holding the the wheel. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Let me. Also, by the way, Tress at the wheel. All... And it, this is on. This is okay. Well, I'm looking on my phone. It's 28 percent into the book, and you got Sale with like a subtly green. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I like it. Uh, someone actually colorized that on Reddit. I saw. And, I, and it looked gorgeous. Ooh. Yeah. But no, the 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 one with the midnight essence is is fantastic. Like the red is so vibrant and so stark in there. Yes. I'm excited for like the 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 midnight essence. I'm also a big like. You put a snake in your story, and I'm like a fan immediately. Snakes are just cool <laughs> and fascinating, and and like I'm not going to say creepy or unsettling because I don't think they're either of those things, but they are just for me, like magnetic. I cannot see a snake and not just be like, Oh my gosh. And so having serpentine midnight essence. Oh man. It's so good. <laughs> And then maybe the most iconic, gotta also call out the Sorceress's tower lifting off. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, very it's iconic. Uh, I am I am partial to the rat. Okay. Okay. Little, little friend. Yep. Um, I, so, so I'm going to, okay, we, we have to talk about the, the two elephants in the room, right? We have to talk about the dragon. <laughs> so you want to move just straight into Cosmere here? No, I want to talk about the illustration of the dragon. Oh, the illustration. Of the, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, 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 okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, as much as I love Howard Lyons art, I don't like this dragon. <laughs> really, you don't? I don't. Uh it is too He's almost too humanoid for me. Hmm, okay. Especially in the way that like he is like resting on one knee. Yeah. Mm. I get that. Okay, that's fair. Um, like the, the stuff that's happening above the neck, great wings, great. See, this is Hands, funny because my biggest sure. issue with it was his horns. I wanted a more oh, metallic. Well, like like I wanted almost like sheet metal. Like I wanted to see flat, angular. Yeah. Um, maybe like that, that's just the way I read the scene, even yeah, though like yeah. the scene specifically calls out that it almost looks liquid, which definitely doesn't jive with my mental image. Uh, but like, <laughs> but so I, I didn't love the horns, but I love um, specifically like below the neck. I love the metallic chest scales. That is good. Like, oh. Yeah. Uh, also his claw. I, I think, I think it's just yeah. like, and, and, I suspect that between this and the frost illustration that Katie Payne did under Isaac's direction. Mm. Wait, what? Which Have is I also kind of like a skinny so. serpentine dragon. Said Have there. I seen this? Uh, it's somewhere on Instagram. I don't do Instagram. Mm. <laughs> I will. All right, I'm going to Google Katie Payne frost. <laughs> You're welcome for the publicity, It's, it's Katie. really Hoyd with Frost in the background. <laughs> uh, in fact, if you go to the Coppermind page for Frost, I believe it's there. Hoyd hanging with his BFF Frost? Oh, no, that is... Yeah, it's on the Coppermind page. Definitely not it. Okay. Oh, I just need to go to Coppermind. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Anyway. <laughs> um, but between those two... I'm getting the impression that like my mental image for how dragons look in the Cosmere doesn't match Brandon's mental image for how dragons look in the Cosmere. And I don't like his. <laughs> you like yours better? I like mine better. Yeah. Um, for me, they are a little, a little bulkier than, than his. Uh, they definitely don't have this like weird humanoid stands. Yes. Um, and I would have, I will inevitably event like commission this piece of art because I would like it for myself. But I would like like the way Zeisis is described is like he like um, kind of slides into the room and then rests in a way that I imagine like 
almost like a lion would, you know, like like paw over paw. Yeah. I mean, I do have That's a pretty image. vivid image of him coming down the hallway into the room on all fours. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then just kind of resting there and like not standing up. Also, just want to point out, like, hell yeah, Brandon. Thanks for giving us a dragon in dragon form. I fully expected the scene to be yeah. with like a dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When an actual dragon rolled up, I was so psyched. <sighs> so good. Yeah. Um, but that's that's all I want to talk about this elephant in the room mm-hmm. when it comes to illustration. Uh, the other one, of course, is the final illustration with with Hoyd, Ryana, and, and Tress, and yeah. Aeons in the middle. Yep. Right. Ooh. Uh, which... Once again, Hard Lion, I love you, but Ryana does not look like an Elantrian. No, she doesn't. No. No. Uh, so, which between the two of these and between, like, a lot of the illustrations in this book are, like, I've just had to accept that they are, that they don't represent, like how the characters appear canonically right. or how the scenes play right. out canonically. Hoyd sure does uh, in this illustration. Hoyd is good. <laughs> yes, Hoyd is good. We we got the fire print t-shirt that. and socks and sandals. Mismatched socks and sandals. Uh, <laughs> yes. And also I will... Actually, I'll save that for later. Uh, but like in in this very scene, Rahina mocks... Tress's hair and is like, I'm sure they have hairbrushes on your yeah. world. Yep. Look at Tress's perfect hair. And then Tress is also saying that she can't see past it because it's in her face and she's pinned. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. There's like, and like throughout the entire book, like the Tress's hair is very much a defining feature for her. And the fact that it's unruly and that she puts it in a braid all of the time and that she can't brush it very well. And every single illustration is just perfect hair. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which, like, Howard just draws them pretty. Like, Howard is incapable of drawing Ah. imperfection. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Um, Saleh is also, like she's described as having tight curls for hair and in her illustration is just like straight long hair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. With a couple of dreads. Uh, Ooh, also literally just a couple. Yeah. Captain Crow. I definitely see her face is more severe. I loved that. The yeah. crow revealed. I also see her as more her fa- like her the illustration is very good. It's her expression that I don't. I like it really. Mm. Oh man. Uh, but but again, she's she's too pretty. <laughs> I I don't know. I don't think she's pretty. I think she looks pretty I mean, severe. Like, compa- no, compared to. She's got like hard lines on her face. Nope, she's putting them there with a scowl. Nope. Like, <laughs> nope. That's like how I, 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 but, but this, I do like this, this crow revealed uh, image 
illustration is pretty darn close. The only thing I would say is that I saw her as like a, with a little sharper of a nose. A little like more pronounced. Also, the vines come out her eye. All right. Like, they it's do not... come out her eye. Yeah, but you don't see her eye anymore. It's scary. Ugh. It's scary. And she's bleeding. She is bleeding. More than that. <laughs> There's a drop there. Sorry, Evgeny, you go. Um, I I mean it's the vines thing I can accept for artistic license like that's yeah. that, that's fine. Um, I do I do like that one of the vines is holding the 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 bullet the musket shell. Uh, because that's coming from the scene where she was not like she was shooting herself, yes. but oh, knew that the vines yeah. would protect yes. her. I didn't even notice the. Yeah, the the ball, the round is. So I hmm. see her expression as a bad stage actor. Like I'm telling you, I'm evil. Like not like, <laughs> just try me, just try me. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Sorry. Uh, do we have more art to talk about, or shall we finally move into Cosmere? <laughs> Because this is like this is the main course. This is the thing everybody's been waiting to just go all out. Like there's <laughs> okay, so okay, much okay, here. Okay, okay. Do we start with Yeah, yeah, let's do Sizes? that. Yeah. Okay. So disclaimer, just for anybody who maybe is starting with Brandon Sanderson's Kickstarters, whatever, we're gonna be talking about Every single published Cosmere work and some unpublished Cosmere works. Uh, oh, we are? Oh, we have to. And unpublished yeah. as in... Like, this conversation will include references to Dragonsteel Prime and Ether of Night. Okay. <laughs> Evgeny rolls his eyes and goes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's necessary. Uh... Very minimal for Dragonsteel Prime, but and honestly minimal for Ether of Night as well. But um but yeah, let's start with Zysis. Like Okay, first on screen dragon. Yeah, first on screen dragon. Um first on screen like use of the word dragon steel, which in solid form looks like it is liquid. Uh first time we see dragons is, yeah. is left behind um, when they die yeah so in the this is my dragon steel prime uh this was originally the shattered planes uh they were in dragon steel prime and instead of harvesting the gem hearts from chasm fiend chrysalises they were harvesting dragon steel wells um, has all kinds of fun properties and value and everything like that. But what I'm more interested in is his magic. So, yeah, gotta gotta adjust adjust your position in your seat. Uh, uh, let's let's see it up properly. I I want to know, Evgeny, your opinion. I have no idea. Okay, well, my 
I'm torn on whether this is microkinesis, which is my inclination. It is. It is not. Or if he has awakening in some manner. Okay. So you, you so just, it my, is not microkinesis. That that sounded very definitive. It is, I I that's because I very strongly believe it's awakening. Mm-hmm. Um okay. I think he either has a bunch of like awakened objects, specifically like because we see there are, I believe, pillars yep. in his chamber and there are cloths wrapped around. wrapped around those pillars. I think those are just like ready servants guardians Ooh. they have been awakened mm-hmm. and they are just waiting for his command i think they serve almost like lifeless wood okay okay um and so the and and he can give them mental commands because i think he has enough breath and and or investiture to uh, awaken nonverbal which makes dragons so terrifying uh. <laughs> We haven't got we haven't gotten to the part where I think it's things get terrible. See, well, and that's why um, I wait. Whoa, like, whoa, whoa! You just expanded two dragons. Do they all? You assume they all have this then? No, not necessarily. Well, mm, I don't think every dragon think has awakening. If this is awakening, I definitely don't think that's the case. That okay. is a native Nalthian thing. Dragons are from Yolan, but I yeah, you just could see. All dragons having enough innate investiture that if they gained the ability to awaken things, they have enough investiture inside them for pretty crazy commands and, you know. um, Well, I mean, if he feels like he's got enough spared for these columns to just have have cloths sit there. Right. I mean, th- these would be like a minuscule number of breaths to awaken a sheet of cloth. Yeah, it's it's more that he has so much well, inside of him that he can command them from like non-verbally, like in instinctual oh, okay, okay. command, like the God King does. Well, I thought it was like which is I think like ninth height, yeah, or tenth height, yeah. Actually. Okay, I thought it was like fifty to awaken, but if they're not. Yeah, to awaken something is just a and little then, bit. But then you but need to command them without, like, the, to command them in the way that if this yeah, is awakening, yeah. that that requires like ten thousand plus. Like, this is insane numbers. Of so breaths. he he waves a claw. Yeah. So at the very least, he's he's has to do but a he motion. Maybe he doesn't say anything. No, he doesn't. And. And 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 I I think that's just like a normal gesture that he does, like oh shush you. Yeah. Um, so for me, do. what like why I want this to be microkinesis is because of the um, the implications of that sort of fine control that dragons could have, or this particular dragon could have such like incredible fine literal atomic control. That's like that is horrifying. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I think that's too much. It might be. It might be. Because why aren't they ruling everything? Is that what you're saying, Evgeny? Like, if they're that powerful, uh, why aren't they... Um, no, I, I do think they're, like, incredibly powerful. I... It feels like that is too much power in microkinesis 
away from like extraordinary circumstances. Okay. Like I would expect as a reader to see this kind of accomplishment in a moment in a far more dramatic moment, right? Like maybe we are maybe we are reading Dragonsteel and we are observing the shattering and there is a master of microkinesis present there. Maybe Frost is there, right? And if he does something like that there with microkinesis, I'm more willing to accept that. But if we are in some backwater world and a dragon <laughs> is using this kind of art on this level so casually that almost feels wasteful to me. Okay. That's fair. This may be a case of me like going full fanboy and instead of like really considering the narrative impacts of that, but I just want it to be so badly. Like, I mean, <laughs> but yeah, but that, that is you know where uh, I was going. I was like, this is either microkinesis or awakening. And I just want it to be microkinesis. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I think it's instinctual yeah. awakening, or or they are pre-awakened. Yeah. Um, what I find honestly more interesting than any of that, mm. and this is going to touch into uh, into the sorceress a little bit as well. Uh, oh, oh, so first of all, uh, let's get something out of the way. We think this is this is foil. Yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. Rhythm of War. The. Uh, Epilogue, the Ars Arcanum, let me pull it up. Um, read the actual quote. This may be of particular interest to Foyo under his Ocean yeah. of Aether, um, or Ocean or whatever. Okay, yeah, so we are we are talking about Command at the very end. I think that perhaps Foyle, deep within his ocean, would find this information supports my theories over his, and he'd do well to listen to me on this matter if he ever wishes to achieve control over the ethers, as he has insisted is his goal. This has to be Foyle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How many how many dragons are under oceans and are interested in yeah. ethers? Uh, like, doesn't it say somewhere here that he's interested in... Foil or Zysis? Zysis. He it. is specifically looking for... Or Hoyd says he... Slaves who are not afraid of Aethers. Yeah, but Hoyd says his ultimate goal is... Something about the microbiome. I'm going to double check this. Um, Give me a second to find it. He's... Uh, ecosystem. Yeah, ecosystem. Ecosystem is the word you should search. Yeah, he is clearly studying Aethers. Um, yeah, yeah, this has to be foil. Like, if this is not foil, I'm going to have words with Brandon. Yep. His research yep. into the complex ecosystem at the bottom of the seas. Um, Maybe he's not really looking to control them. Maybe he's just curious. But he, like, like you don't go to a planet that is buried in aether spores if you are like, if your objective is something else, I mean, or there's something hidden that we don't understand. That's the only other. Yeah. I mean, I I guess, but that feels like too many misdirects. Uh, you know, well, yeah, for for this book, definitely. But if he explored it again, yeah, 
serving him and his research into the complex ecosystem at the bottom of the spore seas. Yeah. Yeah. This is foil. But, but I just mean, like, what exactly does that mean? Oh, I, I do think it is him trying to understand. Uh, I think it's more complex than just him trying to understand the ethers. I think this is him trying to understand the underpinning of the ethers and why they are presumably somehow set aside from the shards and everything going on yeah. there. Is this actually investiture or is this another entire magical art entirely? Um, you know, like we, we talked about last episode where like it, it could go either way, but if there's ever a time that Brandon is going to introduce such a paradigm shifting thing as there is an entirely different set of deific powers with their own magics it's now it's at this point in the cosmere just about halfway through okay yeah um and we we get things with water and the the issues that that brings in um we, we still have problems on Taldane because of that. Um, Taldane is, is I am very actively trying not to think about white sand when I talk about trust. Yeah. Cause it makes my brain hurt. Uh, I just want to say I got my, finally got my hardcover white sand. Um, oh, well that makes one of us. Uh, there are things in this that I hadn't seen before. Yep. As we talked about last time, <laughs> there are definitely things that I had not seen before. Uh, it's it's pretty freaking cool, um, but but yeah, like I I know Evgeny is a fan of the idea that no, this is not something separated. It is all investiture. There's just weird things going on. I personally lean toward the side of I hope the ethers really are a different thing, and there's like different fuel, different magic. Uh, and, and Brandon is just going to oh. serve us with a wallop one I... of these days, you know, maybe with, uh, like book two or three of the ether of night trilogy. But, <laughs> um, I do have quotes on this. Okay. Oh okay. yeah. 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 So I, hmm, I was interested in what Ulam had to say. Exactly. Because Ulam calls it investiture. He does. Um, and Hoyt says that it gets pulled directly from the spiritual realm when he talks about he does. the Luhelbon. Yeah. And I, I have the quote. So he says, the ethers up above are rampantly self-propagating and each is connected to a primal element, vegetation, atmosphere, silicate, dot, dot, dot. Which feels suspiciously like the essences, only there are 12 instead of 10. The tiniest hint of a catalyst water in this case and they pull investiture directly from the spiritual realm to explosively germinate it's a remarkable process yeah he says your varieties are highly unstable yeah i mean we definitely see that um but when we compare twin soul varieties yeah well, okay. So yeah, you, this is just a much more aggressive strain. Lauren brings up varieties. This is where I want to talk about Ether of Night. 
the unpolished. Um, I desperately want to know if Ferris and Bastaran are still a thing. <laughs> and if so, what the hell do those oceans look like? Ferris Iron? <laughs> What's Bastaran? The they, like, metal and... Bastaran and Aetherbound in Aether of Night like literally have like eagle claws and lion oh, arms and animal. stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I I think Bastaran's gone. I want it to. I, I want it to hey, be hey, around. Hey, what if they are like the legendary <laughs> bone spores or something? No, those are faint. Ah, uh, you think they're faint? You don't think they're white sand? <laughs> no, they're faint. They have to be faint. Which is sometimes white, sometimes black. Ah, I hate that. Don't bring that up. Ah, oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> just bone bone white that makes me think fame yeah yeah i i i agree i agree but frustratingly there is Mm. an equal amount of evidence if not more and this makes me think of the stuff that's in the white sand omnibus with uh chris bringing sand to dark side and her plans to try to figure out how to charge things and how she can't charge them oh, yeah. because the uh, uh, microbes, uh, the eye of Rhydos, what doesn't uh, the pulses don't charge? Oh, yeah, the, the, the small star doesn't yeah. emit enough. It, yeah, it doesn't charge the same way that the sun does. Yeah, is there like so going to what Lauren read there, where Ulam says a catalyst in this case water, which implies there could be other catalysts and he implies yep. other varieties and well yeah obviously abilities and yeah but but like is, is there something to solar radiation that could be a catalyst here and not just water so um like the tricky thing is water does have an effect on on the white sand microflora yes right um and but it has a weird effect, which is really frustrating. If you so one, if you pour a little bit of water, you can use that to grow, uh, or Chris says to expand yes. the sand, yep. which I take to mean that the microbes just like multiply, they reproduce and spread to more sand, uh-huh. Uh-huh. which is incredibly similar to what's happening here. Yeah. Right. Yes. Uh, but also, if you just wet white sand it releases its investiture yes and it becomes dark Mm -hmm. right but if you form a bond with the sand if you master the sand then you are feeding it water directly you're not just wetting it you're feeding it water directly bond which which sounds an awful like lot like a luhel bond but that grants you control control over it yeah and so does does water charge or discharge the white sand because in oops in tress consistently if you give water to the spores you can dump water on them. Discharge. You can form a bond with them and give them water. You are growing the aether, yeah. the substance that is associated with that aether. 
in white sand, I guess you can make the argument. Oh God, I hate this. Okay. <laughs> so your your listeners cannot are not allowed to go in like seventeen shard spaces and say that I've said this. <laughs> okay, listeners, you you got to promise. All right, I'll promise for God, them. I feel dirty just saying I'm this. White sand almost feels like an investiture aether. In, so in the same way that verdant grows vines and crimson grows spikes, Ooh. white sand grows investiture. Well, not grows, but oh, I love investiture. It. Right. Oh. Right, because when you wet the white sand... It releases investiture. Actually, I don't which love is it like because this is releasing the burden. Like line. really think. Hey, let him finish though. If you if you bond with the white sand, you are mastering the sand. Like you are, you know, moving the sand ribbons, whatever. Mm-hmm. But you are doing so because there is like an investiture stream holding the ribbon there yeah. in place for you. Yeah, definitely. And. It makes a lot of sense, and I hate every single bit of it. Oh, man. Do you want to talk, or do you want me to say what what I... You go first. Okay. And if that's true, then it makes a lot of sense why you would lock that planet. If you could grow investiture, that's a big threat. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Oh, man. <laughs> I have concerns. <laughs> and black sand, like mastered sand, sand that has no investiture, is recharged by kinetic investiture. By the light of the sun. Oh, yeah. Which is invested. Yeah. This makes me really think, yeah, maybe 13th ether, bone ether is actually white sand, not fame. Or are both fame? Is the lichen fame? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Is the reason, are we going back to Dragonsteel? The ethers do predate the shattering. The ethers are something separate from adenalcium. The fane is part of the ethers, and this is they're coming into conflict. <laughs> Lauren just unlocked an entirely new uh Um, yeah, I. This is a humongous can of worms. Yep. That I don't think we can feasibly tell. No, we can't. If we want to talk about anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. We are approaching two hours. Uh, I think we should leave that. And move to. Uh, that there, and we'll say. Um, Whoever wants to ask Brandon 
or, you know, <laughs> start that thread on the Shard Discord or on the forums. Uh, we encourage you to do so. Have fun with that one. Um, I will be watching because I'm going to be thinking about this. Uh, <laughs> but we need to talk about Hoyd. We need to talk about Hoyd. He's a friggin' Elantrian now. He... Oh, that's... Oh, from one can of worms into another. Uh, so, let's talk about initiation. Do you want me to pull up that? In the 10th anniversary edition of Elantris, uh, which in, introduced an Ars Arcanum to that story, because there was not one in the original version, Chris talks about the idea of initiation how people come to access Invested Arts and specifically how people come to be Elantrians. And she's like, I have no idea. Um, It it doesn't follow any of the patterns I'm familiar with. This is also the first uh, first time we hear the word Vax in a Cosmere story. Um, I have always thought it was clear, at least to us as readers, that you require um, connection to the land because of the whole cognitive realm BS going on there. But most specifically, you need devotion. You need devotion to something. Yep. And Hoyd in this book pretty clearly showed his devotion to becoming an Elantrian, which is a little meta. And it also feels very Hoyd that that's how he would get it. And he's like, I will freely take on a curse. I think he knew he was going to, like, you manipulate Ryana, where he's like, I will take on this curse, and by doing so will prove my connection, capital C. I will prove my devotion, capital D. And that will allow me, once I get to the end of it and, and call your bet, call your bluff, that that will allow me to become an Elantrian. I see where you're coming from. I don't think that's what's happening. I have, I have the quote. Do you think Elantrians have the individual capability to grant that to other people? I think the Irie do. Specifically the Irie. What? So, Ryana, if you, you you sound like you may have, you may have missed that, is in secret history. No, yeah, yeah. Ryana is in secret history. Um, I right. also, um, just an aside, very, very much not a coincidence. Ryana and Ryano. I, I genuinely think that's a coincidence. By mm, the way, I don't, but. I think that's just a product of all names in Aerolon have an Aeon in them. And so you're going to end up with a lot of like, you know, Ryai names. Okay. But but, but how much is that in and of itself a coincidence? That's my point. Like, I think this is Brandon very clearly saying like, even if you haven't read Mistborn Secret History, you've read Stormlight and you're reading this book now and you're like, wait a second. There was a dude in a tower in that other series who did weird fortune stuff. Like, you know. Oh, I... 
I would be shocked if people remember the Raya Oracle. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. But uh, either way, so so you think the Irie in specific have the ability to grant that connection? Yeah. Yeah. Why? And, and how? I have not been able to so it's not just connection. It's not just connection. I think it's more. Um and I have been watching conversations about this closely, or at least I was until life happened and I had to like do work. <laughs> um, and I, I am not certain where I stand on this. However, I am tentatively partial to the idea. I haven't checked the evidence. I haven't fully decided, but at the moment I am fond of the idea that the Irie, or at least some of the Irie, were the people who built Elantris in the first place. Okay. Yeah. Um, one, because they're super old, or at least some of them are super mm -hmm. old. Two, because I think that uh, the person, the Elantrian lady, who was going to ascend to preservation in sacred history... Uh, Illinois shares a name with the lake in Aerlon yeah. that is represented as a dot in, in each aeon. Yeah. You do the, the coastline, you do the mountains, and you do the lake in the middle. Mm -hmm. That's not, a, like, cannot be a coincidence. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and so I I kind of like the idea that she or predecessors or, you know, whatever, someone was involved in the construction of Elantris, which by itself doesn't create Elantrians, right? Elantris is an amplification right. system, yeah. right? Um, but whoever did that probably understood Eandor and the local investiture and the shards and the Sheyod well enough, or maybe constructed the Sheod, although I don't know how I feel about that one, <clears throat> to be able to grant this. And so I think the way things played out on Lumar, and this is a very tentative, I think, um, is that Hoyd showed up. Uh, he was like, hey, I am looking for, uh, what's the words that he was... Connection. My only chance had been to find one smart enough to be a member of that yep. group. Yep. The Irie, I presume. Um, stupid enough for me to toy with and sadistic enough to trade membership for the opportunity to see me cursed. Yep. And so this is why I don't think it was, um, you know, just proving devotion or whatever. I think it was a transactional Hoyd shows up and he's like, hey, I'll let you curse me, but if I undo the curse, I join your organization. Hmm. Okay, I have two questions and, for you. Wait. And I, I just okay, want to finish with okay. saying that his transformation is instant. It is yes. instant. Like, she doesn't do anything in that moment. Like, I think the... So... <sighs> Aeondor is it's freaking magic. It's what it is. Yeah, like in, in a universe of magic, Aeondor is magic. You can, yeah. Um, 
I have been very actively trying to like change the way I think about Aeondor and like consider it more properly. This is magical programming. You can do whatever you want as long as you can like write it out in the yeah. proper in the proper language. Yeah. And I think mechanically the way that works, by the way, because this is important here, is you you write out the thing, right? Yeah. You write out you write out the ionic equation and like that settles in your soul. I think that is very much the kind of thing that a shard might be able to do, except shards, I think, do this, like, instinctually. Yeah, like, right? When someone like uh, the Night Watcher or Cultivation decides mm, to change yeah. someone, I think they just, like, reach into that person's soul and they make whatever tweaks they want to make. When Harmony decides to make Spook a Mistborn, yep. just reaches into that soul, makes the changes. Uh, Hemalurgy, I think works mm. in the same way mm, but in that well one physically two much more limited right but sure. yeah. regardless of the mechanics of it you are or regardless of the specifics of it you are like reaching into a soul and like making a change either uh, either pulling something out or putting something in right it's 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 soul surgery mm -hmm. oh yeah definitely and i think Aeondor does that but better as long as long as you have you know the power and the skill to write out the proper program to say i'm going to change this soul in this specific way that's why i think she can transform people into rats yep. and why she can take someone's sense of decorum yeah okay so i have my two questions for you do you think that the IRE as an organization predate the splintering of devotion and dominion? At least some members do, I believe. Okay. Uh, now, do you think as of Tress of the Emerald Sea, the events in the story, do you think the door is still a thing? Or is there consciousness behind it now? I want to say that there is a consciousness behind it. And it's its own consciousness? And yeah, well, maybe, mm. maybe. And, and I'll get, I'll get <laughs> to the maybe in a moment. Um, but um, this, is, this is predictably something I've been talking a lot about lately. I, so I think the first time we heard about, oh, the, the land is kind of maybe gaining uh, sentience mm -hmm. in there was in the Selish essay, right? In yeah. Kind of on a meta level, and purely on a meta level, I don't think, <sighs> the door is extremely unique. Yes having two shards shoved together into the cognitive realm is extremely unique. Having this much investiture be left alone for this long as, as like mm -hmm. an entire thing, not splintered, extremely it, unique. It, that's right? why I think it has to have developed its own. Like we've seen this phenomenon of splinters of investiture in the cognitive realm in on Roshar, 
and they develop yeah. their own consciousnesses. That's how we see Spren, like, like, you know, it's rudimentary yeah, 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 consciousness, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's consciousness, yeah. you know. On a, on a small on a small scale, absolutely. The question has always been, how long is it going to take for something this yeah. big, right? And I, th the reason I like the idea that it that the door awakens at some point. Oh God, I can't. Yeah, no, you can't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the reason I think uh, the door develops sapience, if not sentience, is because this is an extremely rare opportunity for Brandon, the author, to show something like that, to develop, to, to show kind of a spontaneous, shardic, or, or spontaneous development of sapiens on this scale. Like, because if he doesn't do it here, there's nowhere else in the Cosmere he can do that. Maybe. Maybe. We, we are still missing a shard, I think, yeah. uh, or two. Uh, but but on a meta level, that's that's why I think that's uh, that's going to play out that way. On a non-meta level, and this is going back to the maybe of of whether this is the door's own mind or or some other. <sighs> Autonomy has been on people's minds a lot lately. Yep. And and avatars have been on people's minds a lot lately, and. I will pull a wob real quick. This doesn't feel like an avatar situation to me. Uh, that's not the avatar I'm thinking about. Okay. 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 Uh, so this actually oh, came oh, uh, during the most recent spoiler stream. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, where somebody asked um, about autonomy having avatars in other worlds. Uh, and, and that person noticed that in Shudereth, which is the Derethi religion in Elantris, mm -hmm. Yadith speaks directly to Wern, who then propagates this down the hierarchy, which is very much like an autonomy avatars, yeah. worshippers kind of situation. Yeah, there's a similar hierarchy to the set. And there's also that, yeah, yeah. Uh, and in his response, Brandon says, Here's what I'll canonize. There is something happening, and the people there legitimately believe and have reason to believe that their god is going to return, their god being Yadith. And I have said before, many times, yes. that book two of Elantris begins with the return of their god. Um, they found a loophole. I think the rest of it is not interesting. And so... I, I cannot help but wonder, is or was Yareth an avatar of autonomy in the same way that Trell is, was, unclear? And if she, like the prophecy says, Yareth is going to return when everyone converts. Right. Yareth is going to return when the entire world is under my dominion, if you pardon the word choice. Right. Hmm. Is I have to wonder if there's a plan there by Bavadin to send an avatar that everyone on the continent is going to worship as God 
and then have that avatar go and slurp up the door. Ooh. Yeah, r- right. Um, the question is... So autonomy would have to stuff, invest a fraction of their power into this avatar. And then this avatar goes and ascends in, in this, uh, theoretical. Ascends or somehow just redirects the door to a ton, but ascending is probably my issue with that is how does that splinter of autonomy, that avatar of autonomy retain any sort of, um, like just agency against the combined investiture of two shards. I don't know, (laughs) but I know that, the Ghostbloods have access to the door mm-hmm. and they are purifying it for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what does that look like on the biggest scale possible? Oh, man. I didn't even think about this. The word purified. Mm-hmm. Why does it need to be purified? Uh, maybe they mean concentrated. Well, because it... Like... No, no, no. Uh, purified door is the exact phrase. Yeah. yeah but... um, I, I assume because it is still... Like they need to... It is still like inherently door They need to like remove the way. flavor of it, so to speak, in order yep. to use oh, it for okay. whatever. Yep. Okay, okay. Yep. Because a, a Mistborn can't naturally use Stormlight, right? Yeah. You would need purified Stormlight. Yeah. Okay, 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 right, okay. Right. okay. For a Mistborn to be able to use that. Or a Metalborn. Okay. It could also be corrupted autonomy door, and they need to get rid of that. <sighs> I'm just, I'm just spitballed here. I don't actually think that's what it is. I really don't like this idea of a, um, like a, an autonomy avatar taking over the door entirely. But I'm gonna throw that out there. <laughs> Um, I mean, like we can we can scale down, right? It doesn't need to be actually controlling the door. It can be controlling access to the door, mm-hmm. right? You now have an avatar who is in control of an entire continent, and the continent is where the perpendicularity is. It is where new Elantrians get made, and so you now have access to this resource. And I will also say, I could see because all of that investiture is in the cognitive realm, it is subject to the influence of human thought. And if you have an entire world thinking about it a certain way, maybe that, like, like, can that erase the identity of the shard? Translate the identity Uh, of the shard? And now we have autonomy as one shard, but it is three shards? Like, that's terrifying. I... I don't think that is unreasonable like we so we already have words of brandon that autonomy in some way on some anywhere from minuscule to directly involved was dealing with 
the whole Elantris cell demotion, devotion and dominion splintering thing. That autonomy helped in some manner or was involved in some manner. Again, this is the word of random thing where he has tons of wiggle room and it could mean anything. But it could mean yeah. as, as little as autonomy whispered in Odium's ear and said, hey, when you go and kill them, you should stuff it in the cognitive realm, knowing that autonomy is planning on going around and setting up all of these avatars and would use that cognitive presence of the entire population to reflavor that investiture. That's a little too 4D chess for me, but it's not impossible, yeah. I do, I, I do, however, want to bring us back to the Trail of the Emerald. Trail? Tress of the Emerald. Tress, Tress of the Emerald. Sea. I have, I do have a quote here that I found interesting. Uh, for the first time, I think on page, we have Hoyd talking about the splintering. Oh, like directly about the splintering. Yes. Yeah, this is big. Okay, so... Shattering. The shattering. shattering. It's not the splintering, yeah. it's the shattering. shattering. For your own good, you see. And this is a quote from yeah. Huck. And Hoyd goes, ah, those words. I've heard those words. I've said those words. The words that proclaim in bald-faced arrogance, I don't trust you to make your own decisions. The words we pretend will soften the blow, yet instead layer condescension on top of already existent pain, like dirt on a corpse. Oh yes, I've said those words. I said them with 16 other people, in fact. So I guess we yeah. have a view for, for the first time on what their intent was for your own good. For you, the universe, for your good, for the people. Or at least how they presented their intentions. Right. And maybe maybe they only meant it to themselves. like. Or some of them meant it. Right. I, I, I personally feel they genuinely thought what they were doing was for the good of everything. Like, for the greater good, essentially. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is... I, I don't think that is important at this stage. Yes, but I I mean, I always wondered, like, did they do it because God wasn't doing enough? Did they do it because God was bad and evil? Or did they do it because God was they, corrupted? they want, they want, they need? Um, I, I am very confident it was not for, like, selfish reasons. Okay. I, I don't think was, this was a power grab. Uh, whether it was a defensive play, oh, our god is doing things or not doing things that are resulting in our harm, or whether it was kind of a, if we don't do this now, you know, millennia down the line, things are going to be bad. Yeah. I don't know. And I... I mean, obviously no one knows, right? But I don't think I have a preference either way. I mean, I know I have been operating under the assumption it was the latter there. It was, you know, for the good of, you know, millennia down the line and and they miscalculated and that we are now seeing the spread of feign life across the Cosmere and 
And they're like, well, crap. And they are all corrupted by the intense. Oh, oh, each of the shards. Yeah, yeah. The, the vessels have become corrupted, so to speak, by the intense of the, of the giant, giant chunks of investiture. Yeah, so whatever yeah. motives they had before, they can't necessarily hold on to as much. Do we know, we don't know what species Bavadin was. We... We know Uli Dao was a Shodao. So... She was not a dragon. Bavadin was not a dragon. Because because Brandon has told us that there has been only one dragon amongst the, the vessels. And that's Coravellium of Asta. Yeah. Whose name may or may not have Which been. leaves either human or Shodel. And but it's not a very Shodel name. It's not a very Shodel name. And also, which doesn't mean much, but... Do I still... Huh. I don't have them. The playing cards that uh, were gettable. Oh yeah, the lost metal playing cards. That's right. The lost metal playing. Right. I forgot about this. The two jokers, I believe, are one of them is clearly Harmony, and the other one is a redheaded woman. Mm -hmm. And while we don't know for a fact who that woman is. She is a Joker, just like Harmony is. It's reasonable to say that she's a Shard, just like Harmony is. And there aren't that many Shards involved in the events of the Lost Metal. And there aren't that many Shards for which the color red is important. Because she's she has a big red hair. Um, Do you recall the map of Dayside? Is it blonde or red? I do recall that. But Isaac said he was, or Brandon said he was just a... Oh, okay. That, okay. Gotcha. Uh, a link, uh, uh, like a, a, an artistic license. Gotcha. Now, in hindsight, I wonder what, whether that was a filthy lie. Um, <laughs> or or <laughs> or whether it started off as artistic license, and, and at some point, Brandon was like, maybe we're going to have Pavadin look like that. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I, all of this is to say, I think Bavadin is a woman, was a woman, okay, human. Hmm. I'm. I. I need to like. That's a little bit of a bummer. Like it would. I would love it if Bavadin were a Shodel because then that would like yep. tie into my theory of bone spores, bone spores, and the fane and ethers being something different and. Maybe yep. I, I need to spend some time on this and I'll just like in, in two or three weeks, I'll post a mega theory on the shard and <laughs> cause Hey, my first mega theory that I posted on the shard was that autonomy was Trell and I got that one. Right. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, this, this book just opened up so many doors and ha, ha, ha. hey ha, ha, ha. that was unintended i wish i had intended that um i wish i had intended the word intended uh i i wish, Brandon, I wish you had stop making so many words intended. like important <laughs> things with capital letters uh <laughs> there are this is this is not going to be a spoiler for anything and i'm not breaking any ndas but there are comments in the Secret Project 3 Gamma Sheet 
for me, where my comments are like, can we make sure that this is, or, or this word is not capitalized, yeah. but it sounds like it might need to be capitalized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's make I sure. remember seeing let's that. Let's check in with Brandon. <laughs> Oh. And 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 I've done this the other way as well. Yep. Yep. Tricky. Um Do we have any other Let's let's go back to Tresk, however. Yeah, do we have any other Cuz I I don't want to I don't want to bring something up. Okay. We've talked about the um inaccuracies in the art in this book. Okay. Interesting. So the thing that I will point out should be taken with a grain of sand. Salt. Was that intended? Yeah. No. (laughs) Was it? No. (laughs) I've just had white sand on my mind. (laughs) Um, So if we we go back to the final illustration, the one with Ryaina and Hoyd and Tress and the Aeons in the middle. Okay. um, The things that a lot of people have, have... well, at this point, everyone has noticed everything, but I would like to direct your attention to the Aeons. Yeah, which Aeons? I haven't had a chance to actually look up which ones they are. Okay. So the one that Ryaina is drawing is Aeon Sheo, which uh, is used oh. in the context of change and transformation. Huh. Okay. And the one... Oh, I'm upset. I forgot the uh the one that Hoyt was drawing I know what it means but I want to get the Aeon right um let me see if I can pull it up here I have it Just do you have the well no I, I need the Elantra Sars Arcanum oh <laughs> yeah uh okay uh, and so the one that that Hoyd is drawing is Aeon Edo which is used for protection and safety okay yep that that tracks. I mean, he does tell us that he had a shield up. It, yeah, but it's nice that the the Aeonic equation, so to speak, is consistent. Yeah, the the details oh, yeah. are there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, one detail that is not mentioned explicitly in the book, but is in the art, are the flowers on his shirt. Huh. They are Mayorwill flowers. What? I don't have color on Oh, on you're right. They are. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Come on. And so, I personally think that is artistic license. I think Howard Lyon is is having fun with this. <laughs> but but I cannot discard the idea that this is also Brandon having fun with this. Uh. <sighs> really? <laughs> well, I don't like that at all. <laughs> like is that so he lost his sense of decorum right he did 
Like maybe, maybe that drove him to wear his enemies' colors. I don't know. That is possible. Although, although he did have that outfit at hand. <sighs> and so, mm. I, if I were to justify this canonically, and I still think this is just artistic license, I would justify this by saying that. Hawaiian shirts just have Meriwell flowers in the Cosmere, and that's just how the Cosmere works. Kelsier has gotten so popular, he is a fashion icon. And also a god. Mm. Okay, okay. Alright. See, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay with, like, Kelsier being, like, such a Cosmere spanning figure that his thing has permeated throughout cultures across the Cosmere. Clearly, Marsh has. Tress talks about death with nails through his eyes. So that's true. And dragons, I like I and, like that explanation. That dra- is my explanation. Dragons have Boyd specifically tells us like yeah, yeah. permeated all cultures. All yep. Okay, that's the answer. That's I I accept no other answer. I don't want to deal with the implications of that. I'm too busy thinking about my autonomy, ethers, fane life, ultra and Cosmere theory right now. So just throw all of the things that we don't know anything about in a pot (laughs) and, and boil it and see what, yeah, see what abomination emerges. Oh man, that is that is rough. Whoever first discovered that, I hate you. What the Marvel? Yeah, powers? whoever first noticed that. Oh, that was me. That was you. Oh, well, I hate you, Evgeny. That was that was genuinely me. <laughs> Why are you the way you are? I was. <laughs> I was. Um, it was like the, I, I think the first day or the second day after the book came out, and I was I was zooming into the art in the ebook. Because I wanted to get a, a closer glimpse at like all of the sheets of paper that are fluttering in that illustration yeah, yeah. in the right corner, uh, uh, I couldn't find anything notable there. It looks like maybe there are moon charts, which is appropriate, but it was nothing exciting. But when I when I first zoomed in from like hundred percent to four hundred percent, my entire twenty seven inch monitor was covered by Hoyd's ass in booty shorts. And Mare Will Flowers. <laughs> <laughs> and neither one of those things was easy to ignore. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> All right. All right. Do we have any final Cosmere things that we have to talk about before we go into favorite scenes and final draft? Uh, I was going to bring up Marsh, but we did. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, at this point, I almost don't even feel the compulsion to bring up the little Cosmere Easter eggs, because Brandon's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's... Yeah. I'm just going to do big things now. <laughs> um, I think there is one... There, there's two things I want to bring up okay. that we don't need to spend much time on. Okay. Uh, one of them is that this is late Cosmere. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah that's important to me. Um, that is important. And and I feel like 
most people have kind of settled on the idea that the audience for this story are people from First of the Sun. Primarily because at one point Hoyt addresses the audience and is like, you are probably used to stories about Linji who traveled around the world without an AVR. Right. Which which is extremely telling for, uh, you know, first of the sinners. Yep. Um, what that tells us is that we are probably going to spend the next many years of the Cosmere with Hoyd not being an Atlantrian. After this book? In our, the next several published Brandon Sanderson novels. Oh, sure, yeah. Because they're all taking place much earlier. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Um, we might end up with Era 4, Hoyd Elantrian. Yeah. Um, but, but certainly not before that. Uh, the other thing is a comment... Just an offhanded comment about the Conjure getting weird after Seized released them. Yeah. Which is, at the very least, interesting, possibly concerning. And then we have Hoyd commenting too, saying they are more like themselves. Who they are. Yeah. And less trying to imitate. Uh, but the fact that Seizet released them is interesting. Well, one, one, it tells us that Seizet is going to be around for at least another era. See, I don't know if that does, because the way I initially read that was he's talking about the end of Era 2 here, where Seizet started oh. sending Chandra out, as we see with Milan. But Milan was still his agent. Right. I read this as Oh, he's saying go like, do what you want. You guys do you. Oh. Yeah. Mmm. Mmm. Oh, maybe that's how the the story of like death with his yeah. with spikes and nails in his eyes gets around the Cosmere. Says it's like you guys, you Chandra, you've you've like I've had enough. Like you don't need to worship me as a god anymore. You mm. you go out and you do you. Hmm. I mean, I can see it. That that has a lot of implications that we just can't know yet. Yeah. And I I think one of the huge benefits of that, in my opinion, is that we get to have Kandra all over the Cosmere. This is a cool species that Brandon has built. Let's have fun with them everywhere. And we're going to get to play the game of is this a Chandra or is this a Dicean Aemian? <laughs> Secret Chandra. <laughs> which which Cosmere shapeshifter is yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> huh. Hmm. Fun. Fun. He's just laid so many foundations for bonkers stuff at the end of all this. Like, man, it's going to be something else. Like ethers. Yeah. Like ethers. That the fact that Ulam differentiates from true ethers outside and prime ethers on the moons. 
that are feral and aether terminology. Is... Yeah, ether like mm, there are things with that. I need another ether book before I can talk about like. <laughs> I, I need a, a, a an Ars Arcanum that tells me how to refer to. Things. Yeah, there's no Ars. Maybe this is a style thing that we gotta talk about. There's no Ars Arcanum in this book. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it because it's upsetting. This is the first Cosmere novel since Elantris that didn't have an Ars Arcanum. Uh, yeah, but like smaller stories don't. I mean, I, I mean, Alloy did, I guess. This is yeah. This is about if not longer than Alloy of Law. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess you can count that as like Edge Dancer, Dawn Shard type of thing. Those are half the length of this. Less than half the length. All right, we're just going to have to go after Brandon for a Tress Ars Arcanum the way we're going after him for a Nalthus essay. Yeah, we'll, we'll just put it in the... in the. <laughs> we'll put it right next to the Nalthus essay in, in the leather bound for, Ar- for Arcanum Unbounded. Just bombard Peter with emails. Hey. Tress Ars Arcanum when? <laughs> hey, poke, 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 poke. Yeah. Hey, Peter, Peter, Peter. Oh, man. Well, this has been a delightful Cosmere conversation, but I think we should move into our three favorite scenes for the book. Let's do it. Um, Lauren, do you want to start with your third favorite? I'm still struggling, but I think... Yeah, one scene that stands out to me is Tress, when she realizes that that's not Charlie, and she runs back, and behind the desk is Huck, Charlie, like, crying, and... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's a touching scene. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, but uh, also, ooh, I just had a thought. Ooh. What is that thing that was imitating Charlie? I have no freaking idea. Uh, same here. I like my initial thought was like it's something awakened some rather, but also it definitely doesn't track with that. So I don't know. There was so much about the maybe something transformed. Like yeah. it, it might be like an Elantrian awakening of where if we go back to that like uber mystical magical programming idea where you can just if you write the right the correct Aeon equation, you can build a homunculus. Oh, geez. Maybe. Tooth, toothy green and and serpentine eyes are weird. It sounds like a species, yeah. not a... Yeah, I don't know. Creation. I don't know. But, but yeah, Evgeny, uh, what's your third favorite? Uh, for my third favorite, I'm going to go all the way back to part one. Ooh. Or, or is it part two? Or is it the very end? Oh, no, it's the beginning of part two. Never mind. Um, and the, the first chapter of part two deals with Tress has decided that she's going to go after Charlie and save him. Mm-hmm. And so she sits down with her parents uh, and, and they have a little little chat about that. And 
as an honorable mention and a prequel to the to the to the scene that I want to bring up, I will I will mention the pie scene where where they're having a chat. <laughs> it's, a and, it's, it's, it's a two pie problem. It's 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 a two pie problem, but it's also a, it's a three pie problem. Oh man! Uh, wait, was it perhaps a three pie predicament? <laughs> Which is just hilarious. I did love that. Um, but but the scene I want to bring up comes from the end when uh, Tress goes to bed and after she went upstairs, Lem retrieved his cane, put on his coat, and went out to do some advanced fathering. Which which then goes on to Lem like meeting all of the people and like asking for favors without asking for favors. Yeah. Uh, but the, the concept of advanced fathering <laughs> uh, cracked me up. Nice. That and like him going into the tavern is special. Yeah. Yeah. Lem Lem is probably one of the, if not the best dad in the Cosmere. Ooh. Ooh. I'm not mm, which better than some fathers I could think of. And yeah, that's you immediately. It is not a high bar. <laughs> yeah, it is not. You are correct. Like good fathers in the Cosmere are like Lem, King Evanteo. <laughs> that's it yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to hear any Dalinar talk not a good dad um, okay well my third favorite a uh, very different sort of scene uh, Tress's first encounter with the Midnight Essence in the Midnight Sea in the rowboat mm. just the the like, this is one of those moments where I'm like, yeah, Brandon Sanderson, when he really flexes his muscles, this guy can write a beautifully painted scene. Like, he can put an image in your mind and burn it there. And, yeah, like, and, and even on top of the imagery of it, it's just, like, a, a really intense scene. Uh, this is a book that you know, we talked about last episode. It is not as rough as other Cosmere books. You don't have the same sort of like tension throughout it. You don't have the same worries and, and just intensity. Uh, this is one of those scenes that like, I think he did a good job of ramping that up uh, and, and giving us a failure on her part. Uh, so the whole scene worked very well for me as a reader. But, uh, Lauren, what about number two? Okay. Um, so I'll admit that I'm struggling not to do the obvious big scenes, <laughs> which are, you know, uh, the climax and sure. Sizes. But yeah. an another emotional beat one that really got to me was um, the scene when Tress returns from the bottom of the sea and mm. she's got three packages and we don't know what they are because he cut us off right there yep and it's none of them are for her yeah and just like how emotionally important they are for the characters that she gives them to yeah that was special nice it's a good one good beginning um I will take us to the other side 
of that little adventure. Ah. Uh, and to the fight between the the four mutineers and and crow. Ooh. Uh, and more specifically, and so I will put a huge asterisk here. This is not a scene I will call a favorite scene. I do not like this scene. I hate this scene so much. <laughs> but it's it's really well written yeah. and it's emotional and I hate it. Um it's it's when Crow breaks for its tablet. Oh. oh yeah. It is so painful. Powerfully painful in in ways that I am like this is this is up there with like the worst so first of all this is easily the worst moment in the book yeah for me yeah. Uh, but it's definitely up there with like this is a top tier worst moment in like all of the cosmere that i have read like this kind of senseless unnecessary cruelty that is I I am realizing that communication is something I would like characters to be able to do. And when when you have a character who is and, and I mean maybe if I had more time I could like extrapolate this a little bit better but like Fort has already been dealt a pretty bad hand uh literally in the communications department. And and so for Crow to go and like destroy his one aid in this like just just piss off Crow yeah. go scrub the floor in the dragon's lair and and his joy in life is making deals yeah 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 Ugh. yeah <laughs> yeah I, I get what you mean like I I've had that with books we've covered before where like. I hate what happened in the scene, but I love the way the scene is written. It is so powerful. Yeah. It, it yeah. made me feel a lot. <laughs> yeah. For him. Oh. Well, my second favorite scene was a similar sort of character moment, but in, in a more positive way. And that was, you know, so Anne gets her spectacles, right? And you expect like, okay, that's why she's such a bad shot. And then it's not really why she was such a bad shot, but it, like still that that moment when she finally like does something good, when she finally succeeds at what she loves so much, in you know, firing on the on the shore, like I, Anne's great, <laughs> and and I liked to see her get like her moment as small as it was. Um, yeah. Anne's my girl. It, it's it's really great. And, and I love that even though she completely misses the first time on her own because she's super inexperienced, yeah. right? And then Laggard comes and helps her with the second that one. special. From that point on, like the third shot, he tells her, you know, two degrees left or whatever. And she's like, and one up. And he goes, hmm. Yeah. And one up, yeah. and so she she has a knack. She does. Like it's not that that she needed laggard entirely. Like she's she's competent. Yeah. I 
and so great. But I, I especially <laughs> liked that it wasn't just an automatic. Like, like so many movies or TV shows would make it a, you put the glasses yeah. on her and immediately she's the best shot you've ever seen. Yeah. She still had to learn. But when she learns, you see that, like, that specialness to her. So And her joy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, Lauren. Favorite scene. Ah, dang it. Um, yeah, I, I have to go. It looks like it might be the ceiling. Or maybe it's the door. Or the door. Or the cat. But he's not here. Oh, there is no cat. <laughs> That's surprising. There is a cat in the book. There is. There is. Aren't there multiple? Uh, yeah, cat. I think so. Yeah. yeah, the sorceress has a cat. Yeah, yeah, the sorceress has a cat, and there's a cat, a cat that the they the the crow ship, wants the to ship. bring on the ship. Yeah, yep. I I have to do in our climax, like the I don't know one of the reveals. Are there so many reveals? I just <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Like as as much as this book isn't a normal Sanderson book, it's tough to not also be like, man, the the big Sanderson things in this are just so good. Like Hoyd all of a sudden appearing with his shield up, and he's like, yeah, and I got it. <laughs> it, I mean, you you can't argue that it's a bad scene. Like it 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 is just good. It's just good. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, d- I do think it's funny that she was sitting behind her computer playing solitaire. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was great. That was great. I mean, she's just chilling in this tower the whole time with like a bunch of computer screens around her. What else are you going to do? <laughs> like, I can just hear elevator music, too. <laughs> As all the cards like cascade over the screen when you win a game. <laughs> Like, Hoyt's like, it was Best. sterile, like a hospital. But that's not what Tress thought. <laughs> it was fluorescent uh, which, lighting, which was but Tress didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, Evgeny. I, I did find it interesting that she found, like, the interior of this of this tower to be, like, divine in some way. Like, this is, this is pristine beauty. I mean, I get it. From, you know, when you're, yeah. when you're removed in that way, when you don't have that context, that experience yeah but yeah yeah, so what's your favorite um i've been i've been debating i i am really tempted to say hoid with a mullet and mismatched socks and sandals and booty shorts and hawaiian (laughs) t-shirt because that is a lot (laughs) there's a lot going on there visually right (laughs) um I, I think what I'm going to go with is actually um, Tress saving the ship from the two storms. That was a cool scene. Oh, I yeah. thought about that. Okay. And Hoyt. She comes up with a solution and and she jumps overboard with like barrels of spores and water and like masters the aethers yeah the verdant to like lift the ship above 
uh, uh, the rising crimson spikes that just like scrape the surface uh, and and the ship is just out of reach. It's a it was a tense scene. It was a tense scene. Novel solution. Yeah. It could have gone horribly wrong, and she's brave enough to do it. Yeah, and I really liked Hoyd's like accompanying philosophy with the scene. Yeah, about nightmares. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Nice. That's a good one. Uh, my favorite scene. This is basic, but it's it's the entrance of Zisis, like. This is the first time we get a friggin' dragon. Yeah. You know, I I I may you know have a, an English major and I'm a writer and I'm doing this podcast to critically analyze books and stuff, but sometimes a dragon is just really fucking cool. <laughs> dragons are cool, man. I thought, dragons are just cool. I thought you were gonna get all deep with it and be like, and the entrance, which is like going into his throat. <laughs> <laughs> And All the symbolism. No, and... it's a dragon. Dragons are awesome. <laughs> no, Let's go. Dragons are cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I change my, I change my favorite scene to the one time Hoyd was talking about sprouters and the effects of metal on ethers, and he's like, and iron pulls things to it. And for those of you keeping record of things, steel does the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Brandon's just like, I see you. I'm speaking to you. I I felt I felt seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion of the book proper, but we still have the final draft. So I want to ask Evgeny, what delightful thing are you drinking over there this evening? So I have two things. Where's my second thing? There's my second thing. And I couldn't find something that was as appropriate as I wanted it to be. Uh, but I was at, at the local liquor store and I was looking for things that I think would would have fit the story at least a little bit. And, and it was a good excuse to experiment with things. Uh, I showed restraint and didn't drink the peanut butter chocolate beer that I got, <laughs> which was an experience. <laughs> Um, what I did have is a porter from, uh, the anchor brewing company. Oh yeah. And, uh, the main reason I got it was because it was an anchor. Yeah. And nice. this is a very, very nautical book for a book that has very little water in it. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I have. Needs a little bit of imagination. Okay. Um, but in in some weird way, Hoyd in in this book was Ooh. an island rascal. Oh, and nice. it's an Avery beer. That's a nice. Colorado beer. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a Belgian style uh, white ale, yeah, which I, I generally do okay with, like ales and pale ales and wheat ales and white. What ales. about Belgian styles? Uh, Belgian in general is is beer that I like. So okay. uh, this was this was nice. Had 
surprisingly like strong citrusy tropical like tart note like lemon maybe lime pineapple this kind of stuff um very very drinkable 5.4 percent not as rich as i would have liked um but definitely pleasant i like okay. that beer we've so- had it I have not had Island Rascal. I've never heard of this before. What? Um, so Avery has White Rascal. Yeah. Which is their wit beer. Yeah. Island Rascal is apparently a passion fruit variant of it. Um, that sounds delicious. Grilled with Rocky Mountain water, malted barley, malted wheat, passion fruit, coriander, orange peel, hops, and Belgian yeast. Yeah. Hmm. That's uh, that's really fun. Nice. I like that. I'm going to have to go, you know, find one. Because I'm sure they're all over. They are all over. Yeah. This this is what happens when I take 10 months off of drinking. I don't know what beers the local breweries are coming out with, except for the one my wife works at. Yeah. Now you know. And you know all of those. Well, mm, you haven't known all of them. No, I haven't. Not even all of those. Uh, but one of them. I'll, I'll go next. Okay. Uh, one of the beers my wife's brewery came out with uh, is what I was drinking tonight. Uh, this is a barrel-aged imperial stout from Weldworks Brewing Company. Uh, this is triple barrel-aged for more than three years in a variety of Old Forster 1910 bourbon barrels. Uh, it is uh, hot. I will say it is very boozy. Um, like a lot of like just straight bourbon flavor. Uh, I still enjoyed it, but, but oof, it was a lot. Uh, but this is, you know, this is for the, the final of the seas, the midnight sea. Uh, this is Medianoche. This is not the first time I have brought this beer on. well, a variant of this beer on the podcast. Turns out midnight is often a thing in fantasy books. But also there are so many variants. <laughs> yeah, and so this is the triple barrel 1910 version of Medianoche. And, I mean, I have nothing but good things to say. It Worldworks does great Medianoche variants. It's like motor oil. It's very thick. It is. It is extraordinarily thick. Like, I have an empty glass here, and the glass is like tinted brown <laughs> yeah. that's called the legs yeah that's yeah. shocking yeah so and there's like a little bit left in the bottom that is just <laughs> very thick it stains yeah it does Everything. stain. yeah it does um but lauren what are you drinking okay so this beer we were walking around and we and i saw this and was like i that one i got it oh my gosh from across the room, like I knew that this was the beer for this book <laughs> because it is a sea of green on oh. this can. <laughs> so the can, it like the art design is just hops, like green hops all over the place. And if you don't know what a hop looks like, it's like a raspberry, that kind of size and shape. But instead of those little bubbles, they're called druplets, by the way, that hold the seed. 
it's just all leaves. I was going to say dragon scales. But dragon scales, yeah. Wise. It's rather, what do you call it, verdant? It's rather verdant. <laughs> like green little spores. Verdant is fall. a good word. Like green little spores. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, it's called Swimming in Simcoe. And Simcoe is a variety of hop. Um, they used Cryo Simcoe, so that means they, well, Cryo Simcoe Fresh Hop. So that means they picked them. Drove them straight to a facility, flash froze them, and we're trying to get the freshest possible flavor for the beer. Yeah. So, like, typically a fresh hop, what they mean is it went from picking to in the in the beer within 24 hours. Not always possible when you live away from the hops. Yeah. So yeah, we've heard some stories of brewers like literally flying them, flying like like having a plane roll up next to the farm, like yep. a, a small personal plane, yep. and you get like sacks of them picked and immediately tossed on the plane, and then the plane flies down, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what you're trying to do is get like the most of those resins because as soon as you start trying to preserve them in a bag or something. It's, they're deteriorating and hops uh, deteriorate fast and also they can spontaneously combust. <laughs> we Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, wait, wait. I, I gotta say, this is from Four Noses, which we, oh, yes. one of our brewers went to. They're in Broomfield, which is my hometown. Yeah. Yeah. Another good Colorado brewery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that brings us to a wrap on Tress of the Emerald Sea. This has been episode 199 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we are going straight into Senlin Ascends by Josiah Bancroft, the first of the Books of Babel. We're going to be covering through chapter 10 of part two. It's just about halfway through the book. Uh, So definitely check out that, um, I will say. I've already read most of the book. It is a lot of fun. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. My guest may not think it, but that means makes for good discussion. Uh, but yeah, so that'll be up next. Uh, as always, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash out loud. Get, you know, early access to episodes or exclusive short fiction, fun bonus content, monthly newsletter, uh, you know, yeah, all the all the things. Uh, I think that brings us to the end, though. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me are my special guests, Evgeny or Argent uh, of Shardcast and Seventeenth Shard fame. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, and Laura. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.